Adam Koontz. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, good to be here. So you've had a busy weekend. Yes, sir. Yeah. Not just relaxing here in the beautiful Minnesota North. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I come to Minnesota on vacation all the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's that's not a joke. But um, yeah, I was at University Lutheran Chapel earlier this weekend. I was talking about martyrs. Uh, we read some martyrdom accounts yesterday and uh, taught about how they thought about death and why they faced it with calmness. And then preached this morning and I came right over here as soon as I could. Yes. So, yeah. And then yeah. tomorrow you will begin teaching at the pastor's conference. Yeah, just just chilling, just relaxing in Minnesota. Yeah. For me, it's about the Grain Belt beer. It's, um, you know, um, everything else is fine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they got a, what, nor, Nor'eastern or something like that? They got I another. had one of those last night. Yeah. Um, yeah, served to me by a guy whose family fled from Laos at the end of the Vietnam War. So yeah. he's one of your thousands of Hmong Minnesotans. Yeah. So yeah, good times. So yeah. do you think you could die a martyr's death? You've been talking about for two days? Could I die a martyr's death? Um, I've been talking about it for two days. Yes, because the thing that I've learned from, and I've taught, that specific kind of material 10 times in the past three years, mm -hmm. always by people's requests. That's what they want to talk about. I have taught this many times, but certainly I figured out maybe the first or second time that I taught it, they thought of it essentially like sports. So if you think about the physical demands that are made on people who play big time sports, it's, it's way more than it was in previous generations. That's why guys are bigger in the NFL than they used to be, or they run faster or whatever, you know, they're 40 times or like down, 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 down compared to guys in the seventies are like smoking between, you know, possessions mm -hmm. right on the sideline, right. Is that they just expect to, and they prepare for incredible difficulty. That's the way that the church for about the first 300 years thinks about death because here's your relative high probability of dying violently at the hands of the state treat it as part of your preparation. And so you can tell that they have kind of stock lines that they've given people. So everybody from young girls to elderly clergymen say, my name is Christian when mm. they are asked for their name. And that helps you stop the spread of information to the state, because if they don't know your name, they might not be able to figure out your family's name or the guy that you work with or whatever, which is stuff they ask for. So they have people prepared to be arrested and then they have people prepared for dying in a way that they've heard other people died this way too and that's something that um, the martyrdom accounts that we have are all accounts from church mm -hmm. churches wrote down how did these people die and then they read it to each other and that gets you ready to die mm-hmm so I could say yes, but I'm not saying that like by way of bravado, like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so like incredible. I could die a martyr's death. I'm right. saying like, I have worked through this so often I've thought, you know, okay, how did they go about this? Like, and, and what would you do? And, and would you give the government information and whatever? And you work through enough of that and you're like, yeah, I, I, I could do this. I mean, like people did this. Mm -hmm. They did. It is kind of just half the, half the battle, isn't it? Just the preparation. You know, just to like talk through like, well, what would I do in this situation? What would I do in that situation? And do I know, like, do I know the stories well enough to be like, yeah, right. me and uh, Justin Martyr, you know, or, right. you know, uh, me and Polycarp, yeah. you know, and it's just like, he did it, I can do it. Like, just to, to have that enough, like, that's, that's kind of what it takes. They think that it's 
part of the life in Christ. So it's not, they're not talking about saints yet in the first couple hundred years as superhuman. They're talking about them as incredible examples, but incredible examples are there for you to follow. And so if you realize that that's actually possible, then you're like, okay, well, then I need to devote myself to the same things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a similar experience in graduate school studying the church fathers and realizing, I don't think they really read anything except the Bible. Hmm. Hmm. And because of that, I was like, I should read the Bible multiple times a year. And you go from there, you know? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that too often in the church, we we act like examples are there to like shame us or something yeah. or, or they're not real or they are just a piece of bravado. The early Christians are thinking about life as an athletic contest. Mm -hmm. And so if this guy is in this kind of shape or he runs this fast or whatever, yeah, he has natural gifts, but it's because he worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he worked to develop them. Yeah, I was telling you that we had a uh, contractor over yeah. some work on our stairs and he, Catholic background and whatnot. He was talking about that. He was saying, you know, just the studying of the saints for him, you know, or the martyrs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's like, they look, they look so heroic that modern day heroes that often kind of suck people away. He's <laughs> like, they kind of lose their, uh, their, their attraction. They're right. Like, you know, what's, what's this great football player in comparison to Justin Martyr or, you know, or the courage that he had. And all of a sudden you're like, that's, that's a better story. And that's, that captures your heart better than all of the modern stories that you're going to see kind of strewed throughout movies and television. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I say that like I, I had various, you know, posters in my room growing up and I thought these people were really cool. And like, you know, and, and in the whole scheme you of You had things, the martyrs in your room, right? They, yeah. It was, yeah, it was the martyrs. It was Polycarp. <laughs> it was whatever, you know. Uh, but it was also Barry Sanders, you know, yes. and right. And, and I, and I was like, oh, Barry Sanders is so cool. You know, like I'm kind of a short kid. He's short, you know, I could apparently play professional football, whatever. Right. Um, it appears trivial mm -hmm. when you look back, it appears really trivial and that doesn't mean it's horrible, but it's trivial. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that an incapacity to understand what is trivial and what matters also really stems from an incapacity to have heroes who are devoted to things that matter, right? And I'm sure that Barry Sanders, if you have him on the show, is going to come on and tell you, you know, like running around with a football is not the meaning of life. But a lot of little kids think it is because those are the stories they know and those are the people they know and those are the heroes that they have. Mm-hmm. And he might actually say that. Do you, do you see there's, they're coming out with a documentary? No. On him. So I was a Lions fan growing up. So Barry Sanders <laughs> okay. hits, hits home for me. I had a Barry Sanders up okay. in my room. Uh, but his whole thing, right, is that he yeah. walked away at his prime. He had all these yeah. records he could break. Right. And the, the never really, he never came out and said why. He just walked away. Right. Uh, which Megatron did too. So the Lions have a way of chasing <laughs> away like all-star players. But they, they're doing a documentary. And I'm, cool. I'm actually very intrigued to hear what his idea because i think he's a man of faith i'm not positive on that yeah, I don't but know. i wonder if it's it's part of that where he just there there's bigger things in life than right running a football yeah running a football and i i think that that's something where in the martyrdom accounts what the person was prior to the opening of that account comes to matter very little at all and this is helpful even if you personally are not let's say statistically likely to be martyred mm -hmm. because Part of the reason that I've taught this stuff 10 times in the past three years is because some of us, or all of us, at least some of the time, are beginning to think of ourselves 
as statistically likely to be martyred. Mm -hmm. And if you go back in church history, that isn't the way that Christianity in its phase of being illegal even worked. There were local persecutions, and then it's fine for decades. There are empire-wide persecutions, and then it's fine for five years, and then there's another one, or whatever the case may be. It depends on the politics, basically. Um, If you're not statistically likely to be martyred, you are 100% certain to die. And so really the, the best use of the martyrdom accounts, if you are not a martyr, is that you begin to learn what dying Mm-hmm. means and to give yourself i think the kind of weight to what's going on now and especially who is here now that most of us most of the time have little concept of um we get very easily wrapped up in trivialities mm-hmm. um now it feels bigger than carrying a football i mean especially if you you know when people don't like sports they can be super disdainful of it, right? So if I just say NFL, they don't know who Barry Sanders is, doesn't matter. They hate it. They always hated it. They were always morally superior or whatever. They probably mm-hmm. play more musical instruments than I do, right? Yeah. Um, that's fine. That's totally fine. Everybody gets wrapped up in trivialities, mm-hmm. right? Um, pastors get wrapped up in trivialities. Theologians get wrapped up in trivialities. So what what's helpful about the martyrdom accounts is that it gives you such a clear perspective about at the end... What matters is the confession that you give, present tense, and therefore the legacy that you leave. Mm-hmm. That's it. Because that's kind of all there is at the end. There's there's nothing more than that. Um, you're a name and you confess Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your remains are cherished by the church. So the, the bodies of the martyrs are beloved. Um, when Bishop Cyprian dies, they're going to treat his body, they, they call it a triumphal procession to his grave. Like he's a Roman general who has won a great victory. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. But that's the honor that the church gives to her heroes. That's not something you need to worry about obtaining for yourself, right? Because um, you get a crown from Christ. So it just makes everything so clear. So, I mean, in answer to your first question, it's like, yeah, of course I want to die a martyr's death. Like, what other options are there? You know, even if I'm dying peacefully in my bed, I have a I have a confession I'm going to give to my family, and that's the legacy I'm leaving them. It's really clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you almost wonder if that death isn't isn't actually more peaceful than I mean, dying of cancer or any yeah. of these ones that are drawn out. It's like death is death's never good, and coming to terms with that yeah. and is big. Now, do you have any like practice? like yearly practice. I have some Catholic friends in mm-hmm. Lent. They, they'll read, uh, I don't know if you know, it's the Latin term for like remembering death. Memento mori. Yeah, memento yeah. mori. So they'll read that every year. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't done it yet, but I've been intrigued by that. Or I don't know if there's anything that, that we have even in the Lutheran church, but just every year just remembering like I'm going to die and what does that mean and how does that, to your point, yeah. affect me now, keep me immune from trivialities. So I, I, I do something like that um, Halloween all saints and then the next day is my daughter's birthday it's all souls um which is seemingly created for purgatory but um lutherans have used historically all souls as a way to ponder the life that you are approaching um as you approach death so what we would call in dogmatically we call the intermediate state Mm -hmm. okay which is 
here's the distinction is that on All Saints, I'm, and we do that in church, so people are kind of familiar with that, I'm pondering on All Saints the life of the blessed, right? The gospel reading is the Beatitudes. So I have a really lively, clear sense of the blessedness that is given to me in Christ, mm-hmm. right? In eternal life. The day before that, which we think of as Halloween, and that's totally fine. And, you know, um, I don't know if you lose or gain listeners, but I'm totally fine with Halloween. You know, like my yep. kids do Halloween. We don't do scary Halloween, mm-hmm. but we do Halloween. Um, on Halloween, you can ponder the approach to death. So you sort of do it almost like a fall version of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, which is a great memento mori day too. We don't mm-hmm. really have church on Holy Saturday. Mm-hmm. We kind of go straight into Easter Vigil Saturday evening, but it's kind of a fall version of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter, mm. is that I, I I ponder the approach to death, the blessedness of eternal life in Christ, and then what it is that as I approach my own physical death, I am looking at and looking for. And honestly, being a pastor, this is easier than in many professions because I'm there when people die. Mm-hmm. And every time you're with somebody who's dying, you think about your own death. Do you come home and love your kids more? Oh, I mean, like life, like the the colors in the sky are more vivid when yeah. you leave the deathbed. Yeah. Because it's almost like you yourself were dying and you get another hour. I mean, it's incredible, mm-hmm. you know? So a book that I like in terms of this Memento Mori stuff is kind of a strange book to recommend in this regard, but it's... Alexander Schmemann's journals. He writes them. He's a Eastern Orthodox guy. He writes these journals. He kind of keeps them secretly. And the English version is very bad because his wife took out a bunch of stuff. So all the spicy stuff about how he just can't stand most of what he has to do on a daily basis, (laughs) she took out. It's in the French. So if you have French, you can read that. But even in English, it's very beautiful. And it starts out with something. This is what I always think about in terms of this Memento Mori thing. He's on a train home to New York from Wilmington, Delaware. It's a parish he always goes to and speaks every year at some some lecture thing, whatever, right? So he's on the train, he's 53 years old. He thinks to himself, what have I accomplished? At that time, this is the early 1970s, he had accomplished an incredible amount. And he's probably the only Eastern Orthodox theologian that the folks um, watching this will have heard of. Mm-hmm. I don't, honestly, I'm not that into his theological books. I like his diaries because he has a very lively sense of something, which is that in view of all the things that go on, especially in a busy life, almost none of it really matters. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be sufficiently busy to realize that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When things go more slowly, not only does it seem like I can't believe anybody's that busy, but you also think that that stuff matters. And when you are that busy, you know it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, he will even do things like, you know, he's at, he's at that time, it's kind of hard to explain. He's in a small church body. So he's like every important theologian you've ever heard of combined into one for his church. Mm-hmm. He's, the only, he's kind of the only, only thing they have going at the time in the 70s. This is before people convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. It's a very ethnic church. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the only public figure they have going. He doesn't care about any of that. He'll go to some church that has like 10 old ladies to fill in for some priest who's sick on a Sunday. And this like means the world to him. All that gets recorded in his diaries. So he's on his way back to New York. He gets off the train. It's snowing. He is walking from 
the station back to his home on the campus of St. Vladimir's. And he's looking at the lights in the homes along the way. And he's saying, that's where life happens. This is what he writes in his diary when he gets home. That's where real life happens. And so this, this makes it easy as, and these are the things you savor when you think about death, as you think about all the things that matter right now and you're so busy and everything, all of that just goes away in view of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at this time in my life, I mean, maybe when I'm 70, if I get there, I will think in a different way on November 2nd about death. But right now I think about things that matter and things that don't. Yeah. You know, and that, that gives you, it's not a morbid thing because number one, it's true. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a true thing. But number two, it gives you a proper sense of, I would say the weight, but also you, you appreciate things more. Mm-hmm even when you're busy, because at least you're doing something. Yeah. You know? Um, well, that's like on the way yeah. to, like when you go, when I go to visit someone who's dying, Yeah, almost always on the way there, Yeah, there's a, uh, it's gonna sound bad, but there's a little bit of annoyance, right? Cause I've got 10 things that I'm supposed to do, right? So even though like I know this is 100%, important, yeah. I might love the person, but you there's always this like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep. there's this, ah, uh, like, you know, I gotta drive 30 minutes and I'm gonna be late for dinner and da da. <laughs> but then you leave, and like yeah. all of those cares that you had on the way, gone. those are all gone. Yeah, that's right. And there's like a couple things that are on your mind that are important. And yeah. one is one is your family, you know, your wife, your kids. Yeah. And then the importance of your vocation, like yeah. the importance of of these heavenly vocations, of of being there for people as they prepare, whether they're age five or eighty-five yeah. for death. And everything else is like, oh, it's not all that important. Like that that was trivial. Yeah. So it, it right. does give you its little dose of clarity. Totally. Yeah, no question at all. And people used to be more exposed to that, right? People didn't used to necessarily, I mean, I always think of one of the issues for that might challenge 20-year-olds is they're not there, they're not around birth and they're not around death. Like right. they go into the city where everyone's kind of in their prime health and they're in good economic standings and they're just, they live in that bubble. So real life, like all those doses of reality, they're just immune from it. People used to die at home and they used to be born at home. Mm-hmm. And now neither of those things happens at home. And lack of exposure to them is basically lack of exposure. It's like people know 45 different brands. They can't tell you the difference between an oak leaf and a maple leaf. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, it's a lack of exposure to reality, right? And that's something you could lament or something, but I mean, I'm just, I'm saying it because it is the case and what it, but what it does is I think it creates vastly more dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. in your life because all the things that you're striving for are ultimately trivialities. Mm -hmm. All the other stuff besides the birth of my children and the death of my grandparents or someday the death of my parents, in the whole scheme of things, I've done plenty of genealogical work, Mm -hmm. none of the rest of it matters. Yeah, yeah. Every 10 years you get a sense from a census record, you know, oh, he's, he's still a farmer. He was a farmer 10 years ago, or okay, he changed jobs in the last 10 years. It really doesn't matter though. Mm-hmm. The fact that you existed, <laughs> that's kind of it. Yeah. The rest of it, and, I, and I, that's, I think that's what I love so much about the Shemaman journals is he'll go outside, the sun is shining. That's what he likes. Yeah. That's yeah you it. don't take yourself too seriously. Not, you can't. Yeah. You can't. You're going to die someday. Yeah. There's nothing more embarrassing than the way you're going to look when you're dying. Yeah. So don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to 
we could talk about this all day. Yeah, maybe no we can circle back to this. I mean, you, yeah. you've been so you've been talking about this now for two days. You've been yeah. dealing with martyrs and death. I and... didn't get to talk about the Schmemann train journey. Okay, so good. no, yeah, yeah. But if martyrs... anything else pops in your head that you've missed over the last two days, okay. we'll just we'll pivot over. Okay. And we'll pick yeah, it up. That'll work. Um, but yeah, so when I when I called you and you know said, hey, here's what mm -hmm. we're doing. Would you like to be on? Yeah. Um, I said, well, okay, what would you like to talk about? And immediately you said, I want to talk about secularization. <laughs> yes. You know, and the secular movement. Yeah. Um, why? Yeah. Why, why, why is that something that you think is, is, is of prime importance for people to understand, to listen to, to hear? Right. So secularization, just so we're clear what we're talking about, because it's, it's something for which people usually don't have a very good word, but basically it's the process that you can observe in pretty much any single family, let alone our entire country, of what is happening to us in religious terms, meaning... Whereas in the past, people claimed some kind of religious affiliation or were almost certainly raised with some kind of religious affiliation. Now, neither of those things is true. People are neither claiming to have any particular, and I, I don't, it doesn't even have to be Christianity. Although in the past, it was almost exclusively Christianity. But I'm saying they're not trying to be Muslim. They're not trying to be Jewish. They're not trying to be anything. They also increasingly, and this was true for me personally too, that's part of my interest in it, are not raised as anything in particular. Now, there are lots of reasons for that and we can talk about them. So but the, you, you were not raised Christian? No, I was not. Okay, interesting. So I was, I was, um, I my parents were both raised in a, what we would now call a mainline Protestant church. My dad was raised in the Eastern antecedent to the ELCA today, mm -hmm. Lutheran Church in America. I actually baptized in United Lutheran Church in America, if anyone knows what that was. Um, and my mom was raised in the Methodist Episcopal Church, now called the United Methodist Church, now blowing up. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're both now Missouri Synod Lutherans, um, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, we weren't raised that way. And if I had wanted to be raised in the Missouri Synod, and I do want to talk about the Missouri Synod for this reason too, I couldn't have been because the closest church was like an hour and a half away. Hmm. So secularization is not just a process that everyone is interested in because people that never go to church in the United States pretty much only vote Democratic, for example. So political scientists are very interested in this phenomenon. It's not just a matter of religious interest on the part of churches. Um, it's a very broad phenomenon that affects lots of other things. Because if you say, I've never been to a church, I basically know exactly what you think about abortion and school vouchers and lots of other things. Mm. And if I don't, you are some very strange exception to the rule. Mm. Okay. Um, but I also think that it's basically the biggest mission, both target, but also retention problem that we have not only in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but in any church. So we're losing more people from our church body to Who this. turn into, uh, well, what do you do on the weekends? Well, I don't go to a Catholic church. I don't go to a non-denom church. My kids play hockey. Yeah. That's so much more common than people departing for another religious tradition of any kind, right? You could be so vague about that. Like, well, do you want to be Baha'i or you want to be Muslim? Or, no, my kids play hockey or, or whatever, yeah. you know. And so that's really, I think, something about which we speak very little. So that's why I knew right away that's what I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So have you been wrestling with just trying to understand 
this phenomenon? All kinds of facets of it. Yeah. Um, let's start with maybe some more examples of, of what we're talking about before mm -hmm. we talk about did this come from somewhere intellectually or, or whatever. Um, because what happens is that a lot of people are going to change their religious affiliation probably around the time of college. Okay. And whether they go to college or not, they're going to either keep attending and that's really going to change something in them. So a lot of people, if you talk to them, even if you just said, I want to ask pastors when they realize that they wanted to be pastors mm -hmm. or when they thought about being pastors for a lot of guys, that's going to happen when they're in or around college age. Is that just because like they're contemplating these larger things? Like, like they're being asked the question, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what are you going to do now that you don't live in your parents' house? Is that, is that <laughs> yeah. just because it's at the forefront of their mind or is there more going on there? I think so. I think even if you're not going to college, it is a time of great, you, you are just starting out in so many senses, whether you're starting out because financially you're starting out, you have a job, but you, you don't have a lot saved. You don't have a house yet. It's a time of blue sky kind of ambition. Mm -hmm. And that opens up your mind in a way. And you think, do I want to do this? Do I have to do this? Right. Your impulse probably to move away from where you grew up was never stronger than when you were 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think that happens even if you don't go to college, if you're in college, um, it used to be the case that your mind would be opened up at that time. I'm not sure that's entirely the case anymore mm -hmm. because a lot of people who are coming into particularly traditional forms of Christianity at a college age now are probably doing it by way of reaction because the humanities, which were responsible for instructing people in, here's how you express yourself well. Well, in order to, do, to express yourself well, you really need to think about how do I communicate and do I actually think this? Can I communicate things I don't really believe? All kinds of questions open up by that. Humanities are no longer really doing that. They're, they're really more devoted in most of our schools to just sheer indoctrination. I mean, it's... How do they do that? Because, uh, I mean, the humanities, it's like you go through Greek thought, you go through like Roman thought, yeah. you're going to go through like Dante and yeah. Milton and Aquinas yeah. and all the, like, so that's that's been the humanities curriculum for ever. So did they just completely wipe that out and yeah, it's going away. It? So it's humanities today is something completely different than what it was. Humanities is like some sort of leftist um, catechism class on steroids forever. Okay. And if so, if you didn't like confirmation class because you were bored, try college because it, things will just be hammered over and over and over again. So the amount of content in a liberal arts education has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. I mean, the knowledge of the Western canon shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And it even happens at schools like Columbia that still retain some form of a Western canon centered curriculum. So you're just indoctrinated over and over and over and over again. There are exceptions to that, but they are relatively few. And so kids who are fleeing that in college are happy to find something that is simply stable. It doesn't have to be bulletproof or intellectually incredible. It just has to be stable and old. Mm. Right? And you're saying that's what's drawing people, some people back to back the church. Back to traditional Christianity. Yeah. And and in some ways people are, they're, they're traditional in a reactionary or 
purely aesthetic way. That is, it's not maybe worked through or something. And these, if it's a 19 year old kid, it doesn't need to be, you mm -hmm. know, he's, he's running on impulses. Yeah. Well, it yeah. kind of reminds me. So I remember, and I was much more unstable in college certainly yeah. on what I believed or what I thought about things, you know, yeah. kind of wrestling yeah. through that. And I remember if I was ever having any kind of like existential crisis, yeah. I'd put it on classical music. And I, don't even, I didn't even like classical music, but yeah, there right. was something stable about that yes. where it was like yeah. something about this music that survived for 500 years. And it's like, it's like, that's safe. Like that's safe for me right now in this moment of instability. So yeah. similar with that, with people kind of going back to the church and they're like, okay, this has been around for a while. Like right. these, these liturgies, there's these teachings, these mantras, all these things are, they're, uh, yeah, I guess they're stable, firm foundation. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I have, I have people like, like this in my church. I mean, they just, it's almost like they fall out of the sky, you know, but they're not, I mean, they are, they are living life now with its enormous instability, uh, constant uncertainty, lots of guilt laid on them for lots of things. They come to church. They don't have any of that. It's mm -hmm. not unstable. Um, I'm not giving you guilt about being a white male or whatever it is that you were doing, you know, that's so horrible. Um, that's attractive, mm -hmm. you know, that's very attractive, but that's also something that the humanities have failed those people because they have not given them capacities for expression that are necessary for thinking through the Christian doctrine they're going to learn. Um, and in addition to that, the humanities have failed them because they have tried to indoctrinate them into something that originally was supposed to actually shape your capacity to think or your capacity to express yourself. It wasn't supposed to tell you how to, how to make a moral judgment about everything that's ever happened historically. Mm. Right. So I think that what we, what we now deal with is that secularization has all kinds of different facets. One of the things that's happened educationally is that it has caused our educational institutions to become substitute churches or substitute confirmation classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than being able to occupy a place next to theology, supplementing theology, they have to supplant theology. And uh, these things, maybe they just, they don't live up to that. They're not supposed to be that overarching, right? Like biology is not supposed to give you answers on, on the origin of life, how the universe came about. Like, those those used to be theological things and biology yeah. would supplement so it would stay in its lane it can't so so what happens with in a in a mind that is secularized is that that mind becomes wildly imbalanced mm -hmm. because it's demanding of certain disciplines that those disciplines answer questions that they cannot or demanding of certain material that it provides things that it cannot it's it, it's the academic version of something that i that if you want to talk about heroes you can see with superheroes right grown men obsessing over superheroes didn't used to happen why is it happening now because it is a kind of pantheon for people who have no god to worship mm -hmm. it's something to obsess over it's something to think about in the same way that previous generations might have thought about Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. Now it might seem trivial. It is, it's horribly trivial, but it is a confusion of triviality for substance that is really natural. If you've never had substance, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, you've never heard anything from God. So of course, whatever's going on in the Marvel comic universe is going to matter more mm -hmm. than if you had heard from God. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. What are some other examples of, so, of 
the secular movement today and how it's affecting either families or institutions yeah. or just to kind of get kind of a good three-dimensional picture of what what the animal is that we're dealing with today. okay so what we're talking about in a in a very big way is a movement away from affirmation and practice of christianity that's secularization is discussed by scholars of religion sometimes in some kind of relationship to other religions. So they might talk about it in India, but generally not. It's generally discussed as movement away from public affirmations and regular practices of Christianity. So you could take any given part of life, facet of life, and say, okay, how does that work? So grandma and grandpa had devotions, and it was called devotions. Mom and dad sometimes pray before meals, I just eat my food as soon as it's served, mm-hmm. right? Um, in church, it could it could have to do with, does the church look like a church on the inside? Or does it look kind of like an auditorium? Does the pastor seem like a pastor? Or does he seem kind of like he's running like a TED Talk, mm-hmm. right? Um, so stylistically, it's often easiest to notice in church. In public institutions, it's easiest to notice because you move, in America, you move from, um, a de facto public Christianity to something that gets more and more and more vague all the time. And now in many places, actual public hostility to Christianity. So are you going to be promoted in your department of the state government that you work in if your boss knows that you're a Christian, right? Or your company, right? So in corporate life, it might move from we're completely fine with the fact that you're a Christian. Actually, that's good because you don't get wasted all the time. So you're actually a better worker mm-hmm. to now it's it's hurting you if we're looking at whether or not we're going to promote you mm-hmm. or these two other candidates for that position, right? Yeah. So could, could you say it's, it's kind of it, the first step, at least, is some kind of watering down? Is that fair? It can be a watering down. And I think especially in the case of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the case of the church, it's always a watering down. And that moves all the way from, you know, um, maybe 200 years ago, the church is a set aside when the town is being settled. Well, we have to leave room to build at least one church and maybe multiple churches. Sometimes if if your suburb was developed anywhere between maybe the 40s and the 70s, part of the reason that your churches are sort of all clumped together is because the developer set it aside to be built that way because we know we're going to need you know, depending on your area, we're going to need a Methodist church and a Catholic church and a Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. To now today, one niche of commercial real estate you can go into, commercial real estate totally tanking mm-hmm. since COVID. But if you want to make some money in commercial real estate, you could do worse than to go into redeveloping churches, especially in major cities. Yeah. So secularization in terms of the church specifically is always a watering down in terms of the family or in terms of the state or in terms of the workplace, it might be simply an attitudinal change. And I think that that's important because in the case of the church could be true too, but let's say talk about grandma and grandpa's devotions that they did. Um, Attitudinally that has to do with the fact that you're just not indifferent, that it actually matters that you do this. So it doesn't matter if you were in a rush or dinner is getting kind of cold or you came home a half hour late, whatever, but we have to do this. We, we, can't, we can't actually have an evening as a family without doing this. That involves not just a watering down of practice, like we just don't expect as much of ourselves 
religiously as previous generations did. It's also, and I think this relates to what we were talking about with death, honestly, it also involves a false view of time. Everyone today, so I'm not speaking about secularization of the state right now, personally, everyone today believes he is much more important, I think, than his grandfather did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because if he thought he were as humble as his grandfather was, he would be able to take the same kinds of time that his grandpa did for devotions. Mm. The reason that you're not taking the time is because you believe that the things that you're going to do with your time are more important than that. So it's the person that says, you know, I'm just so busy. I was so busy this week. Couldn't yeah. get to it. It's it's when they're saying that they're saying there were so many demands on my time because yeah. I'm such a valuable asset that like, sorry, I couldn't get to that text message or that email or certainly to a devotion with my family yeah. because, you know. And, uh, and, and part, okay, part of that, part of that can be arrogance. Mm -hmm. Part of it, however, is that our sense of time has been changed into a very non-Christian sense of time. So if you're a Christian, time is always a gift. It's always a gift. Um, and that's easiest to think about when you think about who you wish you had more time with. Because then you know, okay, I don't actually control time. Mm -hmm. I don't control time. Time is made by God. Time is a gift. Time with anyone is a gift. And with some people, um, especially those we love, it's a, it's a privilege. Unfortunately, a lot of people have to get very old before they realize that. And sometimes people don't realize that until they're dying. Mm -hmm. right? Time is a gift. If time is a gift, then it's a lot like a lot of other things in my life, like money and the, and the talents that God has given me, they're to be used for his purposes. I, I don't need to treat them like they're just mine to do whatever I want with. Now, God is not stingy. So when you use time for his purposes, like using it for your family instead of yourself, like, you could just check out on your phone for like an hour and a half mm -hmm. or whatever. He's not stingy. So when you actually exercise the gifts that he's given you, when you sow abundantly, you actually do reap abundantly. Like, I'm not saying this is like hard. Yeah. You know, you hear your two-year-old praying the Lord's Prayer. It's, that's not hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful. So the life that you get in return is wonderful it, it's i mean it, it's it's so easy to say yes i would choose that a thousand times over mm -hmm. right but i think that it, it comes out of the sense of time that we've been given which is not that time's a gift but that time is some kind of asset we're gonna manage mm -hmm. so does some of the, some of this have to do as you're talking i'm thinking you know grandparents yeah you know non-secular kind of yeah. christian based everything has a higher order of meaning like, so meaning goes deeper and it goes above you and you're a participant in yeah, that. Right. Once you become kind of the arbitrator of meaning, you know, then it's much easier to be yeah. very flippant towards things. Yes. Um, you know, such as, you know, church or the architecture in the church, or all of these different types of things. To the mock way that them. You, yeah. The way that you, you run your family. So is some form of secularization, just this lack of, there's this higher meaning that is taking place that you're a participant in. And rather now this, this lower meaning that like kind of stops with us or maybe the institution right above me, the, yeah. you know, the university or yeah. the great thinker, whatever it is. And because of that, everything's a little more flippant, less serious. And these other things kind of wash away. Is yeah. there an aspect of that? Yeah. So what's going to happen is, and the, there's a feedback loop here between doctrinal awareness 
and then actual practice of life, right? Those things are all interrelated. It's why if you look into the term secularization, you're going to find an enormous array of discussion that's going to range from, well, what do people do that is sort of religious or they would generally now call spiritual, but um, they don't go to a church, they're not in an organized religion, all the way to secularization involves, strictly speaking, you know, here's a whole book about how churches get repurposed when they're no longer houses of worship. The reason for that giant range is that it is a process that spiritually speaking reveals the fact that all of Christianity, as well as everything that is against it, is interrelated. Mm. So if I have a deep doctrinal awareness of that time is a gift or that it's Sunday and Sunday needs to be used for certain purposes, that's going to change my practice of life. If I don't have that awareness, I wasn't taught it, or I learned at school that it was foolish, or however this actually worked out in any given person's life, then yeah, that's going to create different attitudes, and those different attitudes are going to create different practices than my grandparents. Mm -hmm. Because the way that my grandparents live then becomes non-rational or an object of historical interest. It's essentially like if I got to own my own home, like telegraph machine, mm -hmm. kind of cool. If you're really interested in the history of communication, doesn't matter at all for basically anyone. Yeah. yeah. One thing that's always kind of struck me, I've got a lot of you know friends and stuff that have been affected by this for sure. Yeah. Right. And I know, I know some, some people who really respect their grandparents, yeah. you know, hold them in very high esteem. Yeah, right. And yet it's, it's completely apparent, even some of these grandparents that are still alive, yeah. you know, and they'll go to church a couple times a week and they can, they can both say they look up to their grandparents yeah. and then look at the one thing that they hold to be the most valuable <laughs> and be very flippant and say, but that's not important. And that, I always just find that interesting. It's like, well, how can you value them? And then also be flippant about the one thing that that person values the most. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's because one of one of Satan's tactics here has been to segregate Christianity from the rest of life. Mm. Mm. So it would be sort of like if your grandparents were from a completely different city and they were completely obsessed with the Major League Baseball team from that city, but your parents and your grandparents on your other side and you had all grown up in a different city. So, you know, the grandparents on that side, they're really big Dodgers fans, but you've never even been to Los Angeles and you are just absolutely diehard Miami Marlins. And I'm picking a team because it's, you know, who is an absolute diehard Miami? Like nobody's even from <laughs> right. Miami originally. No practice. one from Miami goes to baseball. Games. Also yeah. true. Right. Exactly. So, um, so in that case, what you're looking at is it's basically like that's over there. I've never been there. I'm not going to go there. And in everything else, I can maintain a positive attitude. Like I don't mm -hmm. have to be an angry person. Generally, if you meet somebody that doesn't go to church, who's angry about it, they probably used to go to church, mm -hmm. but you'll notice that that's not generally the attitude that's created in people. It's a lack. Of, it's a confusion about church. Like what even is that? Why do you do that? Um, it's a lack of vocabulary. It might be some assumptions, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, I know that's what Dodgers fans do, but like certain, you know, vocabulary, they don't know what Chavez Ravine is. They don't know who Vin Scully is. And the reason is that they've just been d totally divorced from all of that. I remember in college, um, this is around the time that I started going to church, but 
I didn't really know anything. We were trying to study modern literature and the professor who was Jewish handed out a bunch of passages from the King James Bible because you really couldn't read this particular book, which was Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, without knowing various stories, including the title reference Mm -hmm. from the Bible. Nobody in the class knew anything about this. Hmm. So if, if I'm confused and I don't have the words, it's really easy to like segregate a whole realm of life, whether it's Christianity or the Bible or the Los Angeles Dodgers from everything else and just leave it be, mm-hmm. you know? And if I'm never pushed on that and never challenged, like I don't move to Los Angeles and somebody like demands at gunpoint that I become a Dodgers fan, which I don't think that's why you get held at gunpoint in Los Angeles generally, <laughs> right? Um, maybe other reasons are involved. Um, if that doesn't happen, then I, I don't have to care. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's very possible because it's not like you have to be angry about it. Yeah. You can just be like, that's cool for you. That's fine. That's... Which is usually the sentiment you exactly. hear. It's like, yeah, good for you. You exactly. know, we've got family members and such that are like, oh, you guys are like really Christian. Like, good for you. And like, they'll even applaud it sometimes to like other people. Like, oh yeah, like they're, <laughs> they go to church and they love it and like, good for them. And like, I like coffee shops, like good for us. You know, it reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis when he talks about like his conversion. Yeah. One of the points that he brings up is he, he says, all of his favorite authors were mm-hmm. Christian. Yeah, right. And for the longest time, he exactly. just said, well, they just happened to be Christian. Yeah. And when his conversion took place, one of the big points was he said, wait, maybe they're good authors because they're Christian, right? <laughs> it's like, maybe it's not just their favorite coffee shop. Yeah. Like maybe this is something that's actually foundational to why they're making good pieces of literature or, you know, talking about the I, medievals in a, you know, uh, intellectual way. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the same experience in that I was introduced to Christianity as it were by an atheist who was my English teacher in high school and had me read T.S. Eliot and T.S. Mm. Eliot had been an atheist and wrote uh, a beautiful poem called The Wasteland about life after the destruction of the First World War. Um, he's not yet a Christian when he writes that. He becomes a Christian shortly thereafter. But what you figure out is, yes, the capacity to express this kind of beauty, the capacity to speak in these ways comes out of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come out of sheer interest in words. It's not a technical function of capacity to manipulate words in a particularly great way. Um, It's gonna come out of their knowledge of a beauty that is transcendent, that goes beyond anything that this world is gonna offer you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's because of that that I then was pushed to think about you know, maybe I should be interested in Christianity or who is Jesus or, or, you know, just various, I mean, I'm sure it was, it was more inarticulate at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it's inarticulate because if you don't grow up with this stuff, you don't have words for the things of the spirit, you know? So Lewis talks about this. This is his argument from desire Mm -hmm. is that you sometimes have inarticulate longings for great things, not for yourself, right? It's not, it's not ambition. Mm-hmm. You have inner, you have, I, I can't express when I am looking at the earth dying in the fall, what exactly that's making me long for, or it's hard for me to express what it is like when the earth wakes back up in the spring, 
the way that I feel? Or why does the sky look brighter when I leave the deathbed? Mm -hmm. Why are those things? If I don't have a religious vocabulary, I don't have any way to explain why it's even happening to me. Not to speak of answers. I'm not even, I can't even put my questions coherently mm -hmm. because I've never been taught that I should long for God, mm -hmm. that God could supply these things, that Christ could be sufficient for those things or somehow explain why life is beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's, that's beautiful. Cause that's, that's, that's Lewis too. Cause Lewis yeah, is exactly. conversion. Like he talks about when he was a kid, he had this, this, uh, and I get this sometimes too, yeah. which is really weird. Um, but he, there was this garden that he was probably two or three and he just has this picture in his mind of this beautiful garden. And it's, it's a real garden. Like it's, it's a garden he grew up around. Yeah, yeah. And it just made it such an impression on him. Right. And he would have dreams about this and these returning dreams. And he says when his, uh, he has this little circle route, he would go over there in, yeah. in Oxford. And when he became a Christian, he says he, like he left. And by the time he got back to the return, he was a Christian. He yeah, left an atheist, right. returned yeah. a Christian. But it was that, it was that, that impression and that image of this beauty, which created in him a longing and a yeah. desire and finally just in that walk like it that desire or that that which he longed for connected with christ yeah. and with god and those two became the same thing and all of a sudden he understood okay here's now the source of beauty here's the source of longing and then he had a vocabulary for it right um and then of course you know creedal you know doctrine and all of this kind of flowed from that right. as he grew yeah i i think that in that something that sometimes our church has been remiss perhaps or takes too much for granted is why do people show up in such numbers for christmas eve the and it's not just that you know you on christmas eve you should if you're a pastor you should absolutely preach your heart out if you can't preach the gospel on christmas eve i can't help you and you mm -hmm. should probably resign your office because what's happening there is that that longing is answered very beautifully by the incarnation. That if this is this world is so beautiful, horrible, but also beautiful at the same time, that the Son of God would want to be part of that, is part of that, like us in every way except without sin, right? Um, that the incarnation, which is obviously the foundation for all the rest of it, Right? It's why we as Lutherans say that our understanding of how the human and the divine natures relate to each other is so important. Mm -hmm. It's why we say what we do about the Lord's Supper, for instance. He, he has for a time work to do, right? And how, how greatly he has desired that baptism of blood. Mm -hmm. But that is for a time. The incarnation lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Right? He has taken on flesh and blood, never to put them aside again. So what what's happening when you are wondering why is it that that sunlight looks like that through the leaves of that tree on this day in June is that this is a world that is so beautiful and so much his that he has become part of it forever. Mm -hmm. It is astounding. And you'll find in the case of Eliot or Lewis um, you also find this note in Tolkien, but Lewis is just so articulate about these things, right? Tolkien is raised in these things and just talks about them differently, right? Mm -hmm. It's why it's second nature and underneath everything in his fiction. Lewis talks about it articulately as an apologist, is that underneath all these things is the incarnation. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? And that he has joined himself to us. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially when you have a longing or a loneliness, that is really only ever answered by the incarnation mm-hmm. because it abides. Yeah. Right. It abides. Um, and so these are all very, these are all very John words. When I first became a Christian, I didn't know what was happening in the gospel of John. So I thought I understood it. <laughs> yeah. And now I know I don't understand it, but I am much more interested in what it's talking about, especially this notion of abiding. It's like poetry sometimes. Isn't it is. It, you just it let is it like wash poetry. over you. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and it happens to the disciples in John, like he says this concerning the temple of his body. And John actually says like, but, you know, paraphrase, we didn't get it. We didn't know what he was talking about later on when we remembered his words, right? Yeah. And so that's the process and that's fine. Like it's mm-hmm. it's good sometimes to be like, I'm stupid. I don't know what this means. Mm-hmm. Like that's better than acting like you know what it means. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, question with that. So the longing is there first. And just, I mean, as a quick aside, because I think, and maybe we can circle back to this. Yeah. Um, both both Bishop Barron and Timothy Keller are yeah. two individuals that have made this this point, and I think it's it goes right along with what you're saying. They'll say as an as like an apologist. Yeah, I remember Keller was talking, I think, in India about this, and he gave this whole like speech supposed to be kind of built on like kind of answering questions about Christianity, mm-hmm. and he didn't answer any of the questions, and all he did was make a case for the beauty of Christianity. Yeah, and then at the end he said, "Listen, like." I'm not even trying to convince you it's true, but do, don't you want this to be true? Yeah. Like, don't yeah. Does, don't you long for this? Right. And if you do long for this, maybe the most probable explanation is that right. it might be because it's actually true and your heart longs for what's true. And then he moves to that. Um, so there's this aspect of, we say that there's this beauty that we long for and Christianity finds that answer for us. Yeah. If we inherit Christianity in our family, then that maybe makes sense for our whole life. It's just there. Yeah, right, yeah. So those who are secular, yeah. Either generationally they've just lost it, or now a couple generations they've lost it. Right. Um, so what are they longing for? Because they kind of put a best construction on not secularization, but the individual who has been secularized. Right. They still have these desires, but they no longer, as you're saying, have the language to articulate those desires, and so they're kind of groping in the darkness. That's right. Um, what do you, what do you see with those individuals? What are they? What's taking the place of God as they long for that which is which they're longing towards? What takes the place of God has, as pagan deities do, an infinite multitude. So when the demon says we are legion, you have to realize that Satan has his own be fruitful and multiply as a blessing. But Satan likes to mock that in the multiplication of demons and the multiplication of idols. And so in the person's life, what takes the place of that may change over time. It may abide with some kind of permanency, but then other things that are supposed to remain the same, the idol stays, and those things that should be permanent in his life, like the shape of his family, depart. What you're dealing with is the fact that the multiplication of demons is practically infinite and uh, creative in its own way, right? Um, Satan is not a creator in any sense, but he is perhaps, you could say in a different theological vocabulary, a Mm sub-creator. He takes materials he's been given and works with the best of his ability to his own purposes. So he's gonna multiply idols. That is why, unfortunately too, they can appear so desperately trivial so just, I just give you an example that 
is happening here is that uh, mammon obviously is always the biggest competitor to God. It's why in Christ's saying about the impossibility of the service of idols, I mean, just it's just going to break you down. The example that isn't God is mammon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so money's always been there, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money, not money, but the love of money. Well, that has gotten multiplied uh, very creatively in recent years by the advent of something that when I was growing up and you were growing up was completely off limits for sports, which is sports betting, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the reason there were no pro teams in Vegas is because, and or Atlantic City, New Jersey, was because of how that was that was thought to corrupt and intertwine itself, and organized crime would be involved, and this is all a problem. Okay, set the mafia aside. What is happening to the average guy who really has thinner margins for almost everything in his life than his dad did mm-hmm. because of economic instability? He's taking the little margin that he has and he is blowing it on a bet. And he doesn't know any more than anybody else does about mm-hmm. any of this stuff, right? Um, so what you're dealing with is Satan is super creative because this guy is now maybe going to ruin his Sunday, but maybe going to ruin a lot of other things too, depending on the size of the bet. Yeah. On a combined love of, I'm really, 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 really going to care about not just this team, but maybe these players and this fantasy league that I'm in, whatever configuration he's got, but also now that's intertwined with money. So this is how things are very creative, is that the reason that we were against gambling wasn't because, um, you know, hey, uh, is it bad if you wager $5 on a poker game? Um, Is that in and of itself intrinsically the worst thing in the world? Maybe there's some skill there, I don't know, whatever. It was basically because on a social level, this is destructive to most people because people can't handle that kind of responsibility. And what they're going to do is they're just going to blow the little margin that they had between their paycheck and their bills Mm -hmm. on something that seems like it's going to work out really good and seems really interesting. But what it's ultimately going to do is just drive them further into debt. Mm -hmm. That's how casinos are going to make money, right? Which they do make a lot of money. Yeah, by servicing debt, right? Mm -hmm. That's, That's the real business here. It's not about sports yeah right so so what, what that also yeah. does there is that makes the you know for, i've moved away from sports i, yeah. I just find i don't have much time but i'll watch the michigan ohio state game sure but if i want to so i don't follow teams as much as to follow the Lions, yeah. watch yeah. one or two games a year but if i want to really fill my weekend i can gamble on six games and i can spend you know i can spend yeah 12 hours or, yeah all kinds it? of time yeah i can spend my whole Your weekend whole, yes that's right and therefore i've now filled my time i've filled my I feel passionate about those things in the moment, and that's what's now taking the place of God to some degree. It well, and it has to because the use of time is really the is really what's going to fill your heart. Mm-hmm. If you're spending time, and you, I mean, most people, this is what they realize too late. Is maybe we could say it from this angle: if you compare time to money. Almost everybody intrinsically believes money is super, super, super important. Mm-hmm. They stress about it. They they use words like spend for it. They think of it in amounts, great, fine. They don't think about their time that way, mm-hmm. right? They don't guard the time like they guard the money, mm-hmm. okay? And they don't try to maximize the time like they maximize the money. They They will just spend time. Like if you think about it, okay, what if somebody said, like they knew you knew for certain, an angel comes to you on Saturday night and says, You're gonna be dead on Monday. 
are you still going to blow six to nine hours on NFL games on Sunday? Like, mm. is that what you're going to do? So if you start thinking about time in a certain way, it's going to change how you spend it. So if your time is filled with lots of other things, if you are busy, 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 Right. Mm-hmm. And I, people always say it, they always say that, you know, three busies in a row. How, what have you been up to? I'm, I'm out busy, busy, busy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it sounds weird, you know? Did mm-hmm. you know it sounds weird? If you're spending your time being so busy, I don't know what is filling your heart, but I know it's not God. Mm-hmm. God's not working that way. You'll notice that for people like Lewis, both the awareness of the longing and the awareness of what could fill that, right? Which is which is really just Lewis's way of talking about Augustine's famous phrase from his account of his conversion, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in thee. You have to have sufficient time to realize that you're restless mm-hmm. and sufficient time to be given rest. Mm-hmm. If your time is pre-scheduled and predetermined by national broadcasts or something, that's never happening. So the whole concept of, I think, secularization is not only driven by ideas or institutions. I think it's also driven by mass distraction. Mm-hmm. So if people are entertained all the time, they are going to have very little capacity to be reflective or to be sated by Christ, fed by Christ. And this is not just about whether you come to church, it is, but it's also about whether that has any bearing on any of the rest of your life. And it is amazing how it takes over other areas of life quickly yeah, too. Right. Um, it wasn't that long ago we spent spent some time um, with a family and we just, we just observed that their communication was very surface level. Oh, yeah. You know, like they didn't have the ability to kind of, to maybe hash things out or to talk. And what kept them at that kind of surface level was constant distraction. Yeah. You know, TV's on all over the house. So you could, (laughs) they could kind of small talk. And then as soon as like something would come up where like you're kind of observing, you're like, oh, this might develop into a good conversation. Like it sounds like you guys got to work this out. And then it'd be like, (laughs) like, you know, oh, so-and-so saying this on the TV. Right. And it's just, it's that constant distraction to keep you at that superficial level so that you don't. I think Lewis does something like that in, um, uh, screw tape letters. Yes, yeah, right. Where like, right. there's the one point where he's like, all of a sudden he's like, I don't know, he has some kind of like, well, what about God question? And all he's like, I'm hungry. <laughs> and he, like, he goes <laughs> and he gets a snack and he's like, right. the devils are the, you know, uncle screw tape or yeah, right. whichever one is like uh, Wormwood. Uh, he's like, all right, good, good, good. Like, yeah, right. just like, just make him hungry or like make him think about like a bus, like catching a bus or all this kind of stuff to distract yeah. from these deep questions that eventually at some point people ask. Correct. Until you can train yourself to just be distracted away Correct. from it. Correct, yeah. And so that is a much wider phenomenon, but in its effect, it's the same as what we were talking about earlier with curriculum in higher education and specifically humanities or liberal arts education is that if you have zero capacity or in this case, opportunity to ponder, to reflect, to wonder where the light shining through the leaves of the tree came from, then it's never going to occur to you so that what you're getting on a widespread spiritual level is a certain numbness, but also an amazing pliability, right? So the numbness is vis-a-vis traditional questions that for which we have traditional answers. Where did all of this come from? Why do I feel guilty when I don't do what I think I should have done? 
all of these sorts of things that are relatively easy answered by absolutely garden variety church type answers. You could get them in a small catechism. You could get them in a Sunday sermon. Really simple stuff, right? Good, solid food, right? Basic meat and potatoes stuff. The pliability is the part that I think the church pays the most attention to, but also struggles the most with. And that pliability is that someone who is subject to Satan's, I'm not talking about demon possession, I'm talking about control, which is what Lewis is talking about in the screw tape letters. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about physical possession by a demon, okay? We can if you want to, but secularization doesn't usually work that way. I mean, I think that's probably just too much work for Satan to physically possess everybody, Mm -hmm. right? This is not zombie apocalypse stuff. This is more like what happens to the person who is not under the influence of Christ and his word? What happens is that he becomes really strangely suggestible. Mm -hmm. So that 20 years ago, you can go back in America, 2003, you're you're still five years away from President Obama running for the first time, in which he said, I am against gay marriage. That was 2008. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, we're like in the Stone Ages. Yeah. Right? 20 years ago, you could still make fun of boys who pretended to be girls. Mm -hmm. Okay? You're you're going going way, way, way back. Right? Zoomers can't even imagine this world. Right? No smartphones. Uh, You're supposed to be heterosexual. That's Mm -hmm. like normal. Okay. So you're going way, way, way back. How did that change so quickly? Well, partly what's happening as people are departing from and almost every American denomination has shrunk in that time. That's why I chose that. It wasn't random. 20 years ago, um, you're looking at a population still largely under the influence of Christianity, even publicly. Um, President Bush is still running sort of as a public evangelical. Mm -hmm. How can we change so rapidly to the point where jokes are no longer allowed to be made, our laws are wildly different, Um, We have a pride flag that normal people all know about now. There's a whole month devoted to it. It's because once you are being controlled, not possessed, but controlled by Satan, you become really strangely pliable and suggestible. Mm -hmm. You can become a person you don't even recognize in the same way that in the case of former President Obama, his positions are anathema, not only to his party now in 2023, they're anathema to him. Mm -hmm. Those videos are embarrassing where Senator Obama is affirming that he believes marriage is between a man and a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are now changing very, very, very rapidly. And the direction of that change is hard to predict because the rate of change is almost... You, it, it's almost impossible to calculate how fast a person can change once he departs from the influences of Christ. And you'll notice that when you see people described as, you know, I'm not, I, you know, what is it like when the person is not actually steadily imbibing the teaching of God? Well, the New Testament's always going to describe him as shifty, mm-hmm. blown about by every wind of teaching. Okay, a double-minded man, unsteady in all his ways. So it's not really an accident mm-hmm. that we change so rapidly now. Yeah, that's well. Just hearing that point of you know how much we've changed in twenty yeah, years, right? Um, you'd almost think. I mean, if, if I if I've got a friend and he changes that much, yeah, in that short of a time, yeah, I'm gonna 
automatically start to question his stability, right? Like, I don't know how much I can trust him because he, he might change in the next, you know, 20 years is not a long time. Goodness gracious, for a whole civilization. Right. I mean, wouldn't that alone be something to just kind of question from the outside and go, maybe this isn't healthy. Like, yeah, not even just right. because of what's changing, yes. but just the fact that it has changed that quickly. Right. Because I know that's when I look at church bodies from the outside that are, yeah. you know, Lutheran, like, okay, who's close to us? Who's not close to us? The biggest red flag is, somebody's shifted this far on the spectrum right. on give it any issue. It's like, if you've shifted that far, you probably don't understand what you believe. What you're about. Yeah. And you don't you don't really know where you're going. Yeah. Because for an average person or for a church body, for something that is not setting agendas, if you're setting agendas, that's different. Your changes are going to impact a lot more people. So if you are the news media or you are the Writers Guild of America or whatever, you're setting people's agendas because people are consuming content incessantly. Mm -hmm. If you're a normal person, you're not producing stuff, you're consuming, then what you're dealing with is what is coming next? And the answer, if you're honest with yourself, is I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know if in 20 years I'm going to have to talk this way about my transgender grandchild. Right now, today, I'm sitting in a Missouri Synod church with my kids, but when they have kids, what are they going to be like? And what am I going to have to accept in order to be thought of as a nice, normal person? Mm -hmm. You have no idea what's coming down the pike. Yeah. and But you know you're going to have to conform to it because this is observable it's easier with institutions because they have longer lives than people generally mm -hmm. but it's it's observable in, in, in institutions institutions that maybe 40 years ago were really devoted to women's ordination or something mm -hmm. are now openly pagan i mean literally so not not figuratively or i'm being hyperbolic or so they're literally celebrating pagan rites inside their churches some yep. of them because it would be it would be uh, siding with settler colonialism to oppose indigenous rain rights, mm -hmm. rain dances or something, you know, like all kinds of justifications for it. How did that happen? Well, it's because they're open. Mm -hmm. It's because they're not settled. It's because they're not fixed. They're not steady. Right. Um, and the word of God is going to make you steady. And it made our civilization steady for a very, very, very long time as that has increasingly been eclipsed in all of these different realms that we started out talking about. Of course, we're getting, like, if you are a spinning top, you're going to wobble more towards the end. Mm -hmm. And we're just wobbling a lot right now. Yeah. Yeah. So one, so one of the marks of secularism, you're saying, is going to be that it's just, it's going to be quick moving in because it's not rooted in something so much. It's yeah. progress for the sake of progress, change for the sake of change, because it, by necessity, it's removed itself from those firm foundations that used to be the case for us here in the West and in the U.S., we used to be rooted on some kind of Judeo-Christian morality, you know, Christian, uh, you know, even Christmas and Easter and these kind of flows throughout the year, traditions yeah. in the home. Yeah. Once you move away from that, you're saying there's not the foundation anymore. And the next movement there for secularism is going to be, it's going to quickly progress, not just, just change for the sake of change. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So secularization as a process, we described this increasing departure from affirmation and practice of Christianity. Secularism as an ideology about those things, a set of thoughts and maybe even practices. Um, it's certainly a set of practices if you look at 
public ceremony in America where Christian prayer has been increasingly eclipsed, even where you have Christian representation, like in a military chaplaincy situation or something, not to speak of like high school football games mm -hmm. right? um, or public display of Christian documents like the Ten Commandments. Secularism as an ideology has its own sets of practices. One of those sets of practices is always if at all possible, the eclipse of affirmation, even that Christianity exists. So it's it's almost always, and at least in its inception, going to be, and th this is important because the word is such a shibboleth today, it's, it's always in its inception anti-democratic mm -hmm. because in a historically Christian nation, almost everybody is Christian, at least nominally, and therefore has zero problem. I mean, they don't necessarily go to church, but if somebody wants to pray over the PA system before a football game, they don't care. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. The way that that gets eclipsed is that, and th so this goes in not so much to secularization as a process, but secularism as an ideology. Would, um, would you say that that has taken root now? That's what we live. That has in taken root, particularly in our elites. And this was mentioned. This was noticed at least forty or fifty years ago by sociologists who said that. Um, and so they didn't mean this literally in the sense of religious convictions, but in the sense of religiosity, religious practice, that if Sweden is the most secular country on earth in, say, 1970, and India is self-reporting as the most religiously active country in the world, America is Indians ruled over by Swedes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the Meaning that, that if you want to belong to the people who govern the people who make decisions, the people who, who produce content, you need to be a person who will affirm the, at least, and this is what is so important about it, the irrelevance of Christianity. That's why I said it's, it's important to put it away like your grandparents' sports team from a city you've never been to. Mm -hmm. Because that's going to that's gonna sway a lot more people and be easier for people to step into. And it's always an attraction of if you want to take the next step up, then leave that aside and adopt this. Yes. In the same way that in previous ages, if you wanted to join, if you wanted to be part of the business elite in basically any American city, you needed to go to an Episcopal or a Presbyterian church, mm -hmm. right? It was a big deal that the Rockefeller family, after they made their money, stayed Baptist. Hmm. You know, my ancestors were largely Baptist on both sides. My ancestors on both sides were largely not very prosperous people. They mm -hmm. were like farmers, okay? So um, there was a hierarchy to these things. And if you wanted to really make it and really have arrived in America, those were the denominations you joined. Hmm. Probably the Episcopal Church, maybe the Presbyterian Church. Pittsburgh, Presbyterian, big time. Scots Irish. Yeah, yeah. Most places Episcopalian, okay? So that was just the rule. Now you kind of need to if you if if you're going to be a member of a christian church which you're almost certainly not going to be you need to affirm certain things that will either completely conflict with that church hence we have all of these discussions of should a catholic politician who supports abortion take holy communion mm -hmm. be allowed to take holy communion if you're if you're gonna nominally belong you still need to affirm certain things you probably would just do better and save yourself some time and trouble by not even nominally belonging. Mm -hmm. So that's increasingly true even in the Republican Party. It's certainly true in the Democratic Party. That is the rule of secularism as an ideology, which is that Christianity, if it's going to exist, needs to be 
at best irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it needs to be opposed, but it needs to be at best irrelevant. So secularization is a process ongoing in a giant, you know, widespread general population is one thing. Secularism as an ideology, it could be adopted by anybody, but it really only matters really that governing elites adopt it. That's what's really going to change a society in a lasting way. So is there, is there a strategy to this? Like, are there, you know, is this something that's just kind of, it just is happening or is this being driven? Right. Cause I mean, it seems certainly yeah. we'd say Satan you yeah. know, is involved, but like, yeah. tangibly are there people that are kind of marking this out? Cause I mean, yeah. that would, you've got churches that have moved and they've become, as you've said, like there's still churches, but they've adopted all the things that yeah. secularism right. wants them to adopt. Like, are these things that are just kind of happening or is there, is, is there a war going on? Um, there is a war going on. The agents of that war are not always self-conscious. Okay, so I'll give you an example, and let's just run through a specific group to make this relatively clear. Because something you'll notice is that the terms, the conditions of battle change over time. If you go back 150 years, so you're well into the 19th century, 150 years ago, then you are dealing with a situation where what are then called the Northern Baptists are beginning to fight over the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. Okay. So what is the source of divine authority? They're starting to fight over that. There are some seminary professors who are saying maybe the Bible is not inspired in the sense that we've always thought. And that's related to the debate over Darwinian evolution. And Okay. Mm -hmm. Fast forward about 50 years from that. Now that same Rockefeller family that I mentioned is a really big funder through the Rockefeller Foundation of the cause of what is then called pretty broadly liberal Protestantism. So that's going to fund seminaries like Union Seminary in New York. That's going to fund um, a lot of the startup period for Planned Parenthood, which is devoted both to abortion, but more explicitly and more broadly in its founding to the use of birth control. So that's now changing. Okay, so you're looking at the 1920s, you're looking at the 1930s. The Northern Baptists are now pretty firmly under the control of what we would call liberalism, but America in the 1920s and 1930s is still a very broadly Christian society, so those people are still, they're preaching sermons on the radio that mm -hmm. others are listening to. The most famous of them would be Harry Fosdick, who preaches a very famous sermon called Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, Okay. Mm. So he's gone. Those kinds of preachers are gone. You probably can't hear what's now called an American Baptist Churches USA preacher on the radio because who listens to the radio and who's listening to sermons? Mm -hmm. So that group, which is now like every other mainline denomination, shrinking very rapidly, is now irrelevant to Satan's purposes. So at any given time, there may be a, a Reverend Fosdick, or there may be a Rockefeller Foundation run originally by Reverend Henry Gates. There may be various people who are agents of these purposes, but in an overarching way, Satan uses them and then they are discarded. Mm -hmm. So what you can see simultaneously is they are shifting very rapidly to adapt and ABC USA ordains women and supports abortion and, and anything else you might imagine from a liberal Protestant group. As they shift, they also disappear. Mm -hmm. They don't matter. 
what would be like, so going back over that 150 yeah. years, what would be if you had to pick five, give or take, um, kind of key victories that were maybe lost in this move yeah. from something that would have been a very Christian type society to secularism kind of winning out, yeah. you know, to some degree. Yeah. Okay. The two, the two biggest ones in the United States, as well as in Europe, and the hinge point here being the French Revolution, involve a revolt against authority and a revolt against nature, the concept mm. of nature, because nature is going to be the source of thinking, particularly for political and civil order, as well as order in the family. What is a family like? What is a family? And the revolt against nature is the primary thing that when Edmund Burke, the uh, British thinker and politician, is trying to explain what is wrong with the French Revolution, what makes this unprecedented, and for him is a giant difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution about two to roughly uh, 15 to 20 years earlier, is that the American Revolution is within the same scope of politics and appeals to nature. You Probably people are familiar with the phrase nature and nature's God. Uh, the rights that are claimed in those documents involve an appeal to natural rights. The concept that life has been set up in a certain way. So is would this be like meaning like nature as designed and purposed by a designed creator? Designed and purpose, a created order. Okay. Okay. Versus something that just happened to get here. Yep. Okay. Something that just accidentally happens to be and could be changed, mm -hmm. probably even by us. Because what they identify as the problem and what thinkers now completely obscure, but people like Fisher Ames in the United States, looking at the French Revolution, identify as the problem, is that we are now revolting against the idea that there's any natural order to society at all. I'll give you an example of the French Revolution. They attempt to have a 10-day week because it's more rational. They also have literal worship of a goddess reason in a cathedral that they've appropriated for that purpose, hmm. okay? But they try to have a 10-day week. Well, human beings are just not set up that way because the earth and the sun and the moon are not set up that way. You can't mm. have a 10-day week. So you're dealing with a revolt against nature down to the level of how you're trying to structure time itself. It doesn't work. So in other words, there's nothing above you. Like there's nothing, you, don't, there's you can't even nothing. submit to nature. No. Yeah. No. Everything is pliable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is kind of the abolition of man. That's the okay. abolition of man. Mm -hmm. And that is why you will consistently find, um, and for Americans, sometimes this can be hard to discern, but you will consistently find if there is a British Christian thinker that you, that you like, I can guarantee you he hates the French Revolution. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that goes for Lewis and for Tolkien, because for them, that is a revelation of something horrid and demonic in the midst of Western history. And that revolt against nature is going to continue. So sometimes Americans will pick up this story with maybe communism. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or maybe they'll pick up this story with a discussion of the advent of evolution, that's, that's I think, connected more to this revolt against authority. I'll talk about that in a second. But the revolt against nature is more fundamental and obvious. That numbness that I talked about earlier, I think is a numbness to observation of nature. Mm. Because the reason I can convince you that a boy can turn into a girl is because you have little practical experience of what a boy is. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yeah. You have little practical knowledge of what a girl is. You've never just sat there and observed the difference between your brother and your sister mm -hmm. and how they react to the same things and why mom gets more upset when sister does something wrong than when brother does something wrong and why your dad will scream at your brother and will not scream at your sister, at least not in the same way. Yeah. You just don't have the time. You haven't seen it. You're, you're bored. You're trying to be entertained. You're whatever. Mm -hmm. But you just don't even have access. Yeah. So the more the more you're just actually in the world, the more you actually just experience these things and, and they're they're obvious to you. Correct. The more you live in kind of it could be intellectual philosophy where you're no, you're just kind of out here in the abstract. Yeah. Or if you're distracted by your phone, right? Then these kind of non-natural ideas are able to seep in and take control. They they only have plausibility because of that. Did you watch the uh, What Is a Woman? No documentary. No. So there's uh. Uh, is that Matt Walsh? Matt, Matt Walsh? That's yeah. Matt Walsh. Yeah. So there's there's one scene, and he it's 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 really well done. But there's some <laughs> scenes that are just hilarious. And he's got two where he's kind of he's just all he does is ask these questions, right? So he mm -hmm. just kind of asks and he listens and whatnot. <laughs> and he has two interviews. One he does like this. I don't know if it's like a comic book store owner, but he's like seventy years yeah. old and he's real crass in his language and stuff. And he's just like, I guess he told some like senator to get out out because he made it was a obviously a guy senator who was telling this old guy that he had to call him a woman and he's like you're not a woman and he, i won't say everything that he said <laughs> but it was just point being it was like here's this guy that obviously is not like yeah. reading philosophical books right. or like whatnot he's just like living grassroots life <laughs> yes. and like these ideas come in he's like what the heck and then right. they go to the maasai tribe over in kenya yeah okay and same thing and he's like do you think that a woman can become a man and like they say these things and all these like these like tribal guys, are, they're just like, <laughs> like what, who is this guy? What right. kind of questions are you asking? Right, the point right. being, they're just, they're just out in nature. They're just, so everything is just obvious to them because yes. they're not, they're not living in a fake and made up world. So the problem that would be identified earlier as like, he's, he's book smart, but he's not street smart mm -hmm. or he needs to learn life more. That, that is a certain separation that is a problem in like an intellectual young man. Mm -hmm. And it is a problem. See how that gets extended through the absolute explosion of constant media and entertainment to almost everybody. Mm -hmm. So that almost nobody has the kind of access to life and its realities and its givenness that previous generations you could rely on. 98% of people do. And now you've got your 2% who are kind of off in their own world all the time mm -hmm. and they need to like come back down, you know, mm -hmm. and the hot air balloon ride. Uh, now everybody's up in a hot air balloon all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the, that's one of the core battles that were lost on a, a tree is a tree or a boy <laughs> is a boy, you know, just calling a thing what it is. Yeah. Um, which it's not, I mean, Chesterton talks about that a lot and yeah. he even says back in, what was Chesterton, like the teens, you know, 1910 yeah, or right. 1920. You know, and he says there's going to be a time where wars are fought over calling a leaf green. Right. And and he was dead right. You know, and that's exactly what's going on. He was. So you have a revolt against nature. And I think the other primary one, and this is the one that hits America earlier, honestly, even predates our revolution for our elites, um, mm. particularly what we would call the founding fathers, but especially in Virginia, Um maybe disproportionately because of the Anglican church's problems. And that's a revolt against authority that when you have authority 
especially divine authority in forming a society, that's also going to inform how everything else is conceived of. We have this, Lutherans and the small catechism, when we have the table of duties, that's where you have Bible passages collected concerning authority and responsibility for all different facets of life, the church, the family, the government, the workplace. That's, that's just kind of collected there in a small way. And you could append any number of stories in the Bible, as well as experiences in your own life to those different things to help understand, okay, why are they saying this and, and what's going on? And, and what does God say the government is for? Or what does God say the woman should be doing in the marriage or whatever the case is? Once that goes away, and it goes away generally in a Protestant society through a fight about the Bible. Hmm. This is going to be called in a book by Harold Linsell later in the 1970s, The Battle for the Bible. It's easier to think about it in terms of authority, I think, because that has to do not just with where are we getting authority, but also what, what is allowing anything to be what it is. Because if I can either depose old authorities or replace them with newer ones, then I can change a society very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So there's a revolt against nature, but the problem is everybody's experiencing nature on some level. So the person on hormone replacement therapy is still struggling to make himself sound like a woman when he talks. It's why you will often find that transsexuals have exaggeratedly feminine gestures when they talk because they're trying too hard mm -hmm. because they're trying to overcome nature and they know it. That's why they're very hurt when you don't accede or recognize their demands to be recognized as a woman, right? Because they're trying to overcome nature. If I can expunge authority, that's way more powerful on top. So if I'm trying to get rid of nature, if I get rid of authority, that's going to speak in favor of nature, in favor of a created order, in favor of where did this all come from, in favor of I am going to discover God's existence and then wonder if I'm actually accountable to him, just a basic Romans one kind of a thing, mm -hmm. then I have a very powerful tool in my hands. So what that has, usually started as in the West has been the destruction of the notion of the authority of scripture for the Roman Catholic church, even, I mean, even they have a different view of authority than a, than a Protestant would for the Roman Catholic church, the destruction of the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture preceded the second Vatican council, which later on Catholics would recognize that's when things really began to go south. Hmm. So they, the Catholics moved away from the inerrancy of Scripture? Catholics were right there with us in like 1930. Yeah. <laughs> affirming and defending the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. Hmm. Since they've moved away from that, they have been unable to state things with the same clarity and firmness that they did in a previous generation. Mm -hmm. uh, even though they have a different structure for authority, they have tradition, they have the magisterium, they have the Pope, blah, 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 blah. You can't eviscerate the Bible and wind up with a coherent church anymore. It doesn't matter how many other sources of authority you have. Mm -hmm. It's going to go away. So how does that play out in a church? So, you know, LCMS, for instance, yeah. we have the inerrancy of scripture, right. but I'm guessing kind of this pushback against authority, which is a battle we've lost a while ago, mm -hmm. you know, as mm -hmm. you're saying in like the US, yeah. how does that affect us? Because I'm sure we're not immune from that issue. We're not immune because I think that um, 
the LCMS difficulty, and this is true, and 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 you, and you know this too, is that the LCMS difficulty is always what's on the books, and in the case of scripture, what's on the books is so great, mm-hmm. so good. What's on the books needs to match what we're actually doing. That's our big problem, mm-hmm. right? So we have a different Roman Catholics are like, what's on the books is like, I don't know where you got this. Well, it was like revealed to this person in the fourth century, and then the Pope said it was fine in the thirteenth century. So it's what we do. That's its own problem. Mm-hmm. Our problem is always what's on the books needs to match what's happening, and what's happening is not what's on the books. Mm-hmm. So with the notion of scripture, it's not just that scripture needs to be affirmed as an errant, but therefore also understood as inerrant also for your life. Yeah. Like, it's not going to lead you into error if you know it and use it for your life, right? It's not just an errant on paper. It's also, it's not leading you into error personally tomorrow with your family. Yeah. 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 So in other words, we wouldn't ever come out and say that's wrong, but we'll be like, well, that's right. But like, Let's just kind of leave that over there and like move over. Yeah. And the moves are various. I mean, if you want to talk about specifically Lutheran moves, um, one big difficulty we have is the way that we talk about the law. Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking about something that applies to somebody's life, so if I talk about the use of time, for example, somebody feels like it's an absolute just shut down argument to say, well, that's law. Mm-hmm. Like as if it kind of doesn't matter because it's not the gospel, strictly speaking. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of one move that we make. Another move that we make, and I've... I used to be surprised by it, but I've heard it enough. I'm not surprised by it anymore, is that we will get very relativistic about something being in the Bible. So if it's in the Bible and it's about something that has, that fits very awkwardly or doesn't fit at all with what modern people want to do, you affirm that you believe that it's good. You just deny that it applies to you. What would be an example? Yeah. So, I mean, you do do this with the table of duties. You do this with marriages all the time. So, um, dad's supposed to be the leader of the family. Mom and dad were both raised in Lutheran church. They know that. Functionally, that's never how it works. Uh, Whenever they have an argument, he gives in to her. Um, She's willing to get loud. He's not. So, that's how it functions. They're both unhappy with it because they weren't made for her to lead him. Mm -hmm. But that's what's actually happening. Um, so you can see them tense up when you say this in the sermon or the Bible class, you just watch their body language, um, and, uh, what they're going to do in their own minds is say, okay, you know, kind of that was then this is now that was fine for grandma and grandpa. We're not like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the source of a solution to that is just that they know what's supposed to be happening because guess what? In the LCMS Probably they already do. Mm-hmm. I think it's also the way that they use their time. I think it's also the way that they structure their conversations. I think it's also that um, mom is allowed by kind of cultural approval to resent dad or make fun of dad. And dad uh, is accentuating his own disinclination to deal with it by checking out on his phone. Mm-hmm. So these are all kind of small they look small. I think they're huge, but they're little life things. Mm-hmm. And if I'm allowed to say, well, it's on the books and that's good enough, then I'm never going to get down to discuss the little life things. And little life things are the things that shape people's behaviors and their thoughts. They shape whether the kids are actually going to believe the stuff that the parents were taught that are still on the books at the church they all go to. Mm-hmm. 
So that's also why I'm interested in the secularization thing is that not secularism as an ideology, because mom and dad aren't sitting there saying like, I think we want to be communists, right. you know? Like, yeah. I really like what that Marx has to say about opiate of the masses, you know? That just rings true to me. They're not doing that, you know? They're, they're, they're changing, or their kids aren't even going to go to a church, partly because of how mom and dad interact based on the cultural approval mom feels from what she scrolls on TikTok and the fact that dad can check out so easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, it is, it's very covert in mm -hmm. the way that it moves and it makes kind of little yeah. moves to take over small things that lead to big takeovers where all of a sudden you look back and you go, how did we change so much over 20 years? It's like, well, you lost that battle in January and yeah, February and March, right. all these little baby steps. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you asked for five and I gave you two. And if I wanted to give you another three, I'd have to give it you like 30. Yeah. So those are the big overarching Those ones. are the big ones. Because if I could say there is a divine authority that who, who has not only inspired scripture, but also set life up in a certain way, mm -hmm. such that there is something called nature... Now I can explain why when mom is leading the family, she is so unhappy doing it. Yeah. Because it's not in her nature. Yeah. Yeah. And you can you can tell that they the the families that operate that way, yeah. they don't love it, but they justify it and they'll justify it. You have to justify it because yeah. so justification is kind of downstream of these things. And that's a Lutheran doctrine, but it's also like a life word. Mm -hmm. And it's a life word that you use when you want to and I, I don't know why I mean if you, you should preach a sermon on justification and not have to reference Luther because it's all over life. So you can talk about Luther later if you want to, but this is what people do with their lives because nobody wants to get up. And if you have a second to think about, like let, let's say you're in the shower and you don't have a phone that can go in the shower with you. So now you just have to stare at the wall while you're washing your hair, you know what I mean? And so you have a second to think, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, or whatever. When you have moments like that, justification is what human beings engage in. Yeah. It's how we explain to ourselves why we are not pointless, worthless creatures. Because mm -hmm. we need to, and we're made to, because we're not supposed to feel pointless and worthless. Yeah. But especially when you're engaged in pointless, worthless things, that's the kind of stuff you think about, and then you need to come up with a justification. It's also why, in talking about stuff like this, so if somebody comes into my office and says, I'm unhappy in my marriage, blah, 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 you know... I'm not like angry at him. And this concerns perhaps the way that we talk about sin is that a lot of sin is not only like some sort of immediately conscious transgression. Mm -hmm. It's also revolting against nature in your own life in a way with which I can completely sympathize because I'm a sinner too. Mm -hmm that at the time seemed like such a good idea and for which you had a lot of justifications. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about stuff like this, I'm not like angry that your family is checking out on your phones every night. Mm -hmm. But I know and you know it's horrible. Mm -hmm. 
And it's and it does no good to justify yeah, that on your like, behalf and say you're doing fine. Like, yeah, of course, that's what we do in that's the 21st great. century. That's just the same as when my family and I go for a hike and look at each other's faces and the sun. <laughs> it's the same. It's fine. Yeah. There's no reason to pretend like it is. Well, let me give you an example. And I hope... Uh, I hope I don't, if the, this person that I was having this discussion with is listening, I hope I don't offend them. But because uh, it, it's, I think it's a good example of this to where I was having a conversation with someone not yeah. too long ago. Yeah. And they were, I, th- I think they were processing on behalf of somebody else. So this is a person I don't know. Sure. And the person that I do know is talking about the life situation that this third party woman is in. Yeah. And the story from the third party woman is that um, she's she's attempted the dating life for a while. And it has not worked out. Yeah. And uh, it continues to not work out. And now she's at the point where she wants children. And so she wants to go the route of, you know, just artificial and some, you know, yeah, having right. a child and she's going to be on her own. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was, I didn't really participate in the conversation because it wasn't, it wasn't my role to, but I just kind of listened and kind of the argument was like, this person wants, really wants to be a mother and good for her for, for taking it upon herself to do this and kind of strengthen all of that. And from the person who was making that argument, I can understand your point. I can sympathize and say, I understand like where you're coming from is where you're saying like, good for her. And like the dating life's tough and there's not a lot of good, you know, guys out there where they're living and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I can, I can sympathize where you're coming from. Um, From a Christian perspective, we're not on the same page at all. Um, but to that point, it's just, you're so far down the road. There's all these little battles that have been lost. Like like maybe that child needs a father and maybe denying that child a father is a chief crime and the discussion can stop at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, from my perspective, I'm looking at, it, I'm going, so let's get this straight. Like we know statistically that one of the worst things that can happen to a child is they can be, they can grow up without a father in the household. Yeah. And we want to design from the very beginning a setup where the father is not allowed into the household ever. He doesn't know it's his household. He doesn't even know it's his household. (laughs) And we want to applaud this. Like, from my perspective, this looks ridiculous. From someone's perspective that they don't have some of these, some of these assumptions and dominoes have been knocked down already, I can sympathize with where they're coming from. But I think that's, it's kind of an interesting case study. Rhetorically, you can go about explaining this in a variety of different ways, but you're going to end up appealing to nature. You'll notice that any time that the apostles and the one that does this at the greatest length is, of course, St. Paul, both in his letters, but also in Acts, is speaking to pagans. The way that he's trying to make traction is by appealing to nature. He talks about nations and boundaries and the weather in Athens in order to get to talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the final judgment. So you're going to have to appeal to nature. You can go at that in a harsh way if it's going to get through this person, or you can say um, in a way that is verbally less harsh, but I think it's it needs to land with weight because that person is about to make an enormous mistake mm-hmm. for herself and for the kid, and for the 6'2 Harvard MBA that provided the opportunity to have that kid. Um, Because she did pre-select for that. She cared about that, Mm -hmm. just not about his personal existence in the kid's life. Hmm. One day, that kid is going to go looking for her dad. Because you can't control nature. You can run headfirst into it, or you can work with it, but you don't control it. And that is the primary illusion modern people have. And I suppose by modern, I also mean 
secular people is that they have an illusion that they are in control of nature. Just because we control humidity so people can live in Florida, okay, with air conditioning, we think we also have control over nature. But the reason that kid is going to go look for her dad, if she can find out who he is, is because she has been made to know him. Hmm. So she's going to look. It doesn't matter what you do. Mm -hmm. And things about her that are going to be somewhat inexplicable to you, like exactly why her eyes are that color, or she does that thing with her mouth before you know she's going to talk or whatever, that's because her dad does them. Mm -hmm. Now, in when you have mom and dad, and then the kids are all from mom and dad, this isn't the source of control even. Um, just because I worked with nature in having a wife who is the mother of all of my children, it doesn't mean that I have control. It means that I am incessantly humbled and shocked in a, in a wonderful way by how they are mm -hmm. because they reflect my nature and her nature. And the more that I learn about my parents and grandparents, the more I learn I'm probably just reprising things that my grandpa said and did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think there's such a move towards, I don't know, raising those kind of things up, those kind of stories of, you know, a woman that wants to, you know, exclude any man from raising yeah, yeah, a yeah. child yeah. or, you know, there, there's all sorts of examples within this arena, but why is that chase after? Why is that adored so much? And, you know, even kind of steel manning that, that approach, like what's, what is it that's built into their, into this, their psyche? Maybe it's into secularism that's yeah. causing that. Cause part of it is they're, they're, I think they're desiring as they articulate those things, they're desiring good, but they're missing. Right. Yeah. It, it's the way that the abolition of man actually operates mm -hmm. because the problem is I can't, I can't, unless I'm going to kill somebody, get rid of nature expressing itself in him and through him and in his reflections. I, I can't actually do that. I need to realize that if I'm going to change him radically, I'm going to take someone that was supposed to be and was perhaps even educated to be a devout Christian into something else is that I need to work with the impulses, both natural, but also culturally implanted with which he's familiar. Right. Think about the way, for instance, gay marriage was sold to people. It was sold on the basis of a word that Christianity brought love. Hmm. Right. Um, that wasn't the basis of the family prior to Christianity. Uh, there was an appeal to natural order in the family, but the family, for instance, could consist of a man and multiple women, or a man and a woman and mistresses, or a man and a woman and other people um, in ancient Greece. Because love wasn't the basis of the family, because the relationship between Christ and the church was not the basis of the family, like it is in Ephesians 5. So it's, it's a very clever method to take something that is in its own way wonderful. This woman wants to have a child. Um, this person wants to not be lonely when he's dying. And not to call him to repentance, back to some ground, solid ground, where he has to admit he's wrong, but instead to tell him that the way to obtain what he wants is through technological means, mm. okay? Through in vitro fertilization for this woman or through whatever means the person is seeking some kind of happiness. So what it particularly weaponizes in the example that you used is, oh, it's, it's a mom 
She wants to be a mom and she wants to, she wants to, she, she just wants to fill her life with like, you know, making cupcakes when it's her daughter's birthday for the whole class. Mm-hmm. You're like, what's wrong with that? Right. Isn't that, isn't that great? Like, don't you want people to be happy? You know, and it takes that and it says, you're not allowed to talk about any of the circumstances of this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a world that is absolutely obsessed with things being sustainable, but in the human realm promotes the most unsustainable things. Mm-hmm. Where's the dad? How did this even happen? Who is this child? Does the child know who she is? It's all wildly unsustainable. Is the mom supposed to play the role of both the mom and the dad, which is what she's going to have to do? Mm-hmm. So the reason that it's unsustainable is that it is trying to revolt against nature openly and obviously while retaining some things that feel natural, like a woman's desire for children. Mm-hmm. So you do this selective retention of natural impulses, let those sit, and then everything else becomes pliable. So a 90% truth is still a lie. Yes. In fact, it's much worse than a flat out lie. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that you would be much, if, if you knew somebody always lied, you just knew it. Everything he says, or take an innocuous example, there's a guy that he always says, I'll be there. And like 20% of the time he's there. Mm-hmm. then you know, and you're not as upset when he doesn't show up because you know he just needs to say, I'm going to be there because he doesn't want to tell you no. Mm-hmm. That's easier to handle or at least to plan for than somebody who's always there says he's going to be there and then he doesn't show up. You're like, what happened? You wonder a lot more about it. Does this guy hate me now? Are we still friends? It's not like the guy who's your friend, but he just is completely incapable of being on time mm-hmm. or showing up. Yeah. Okay. So something that is 90% the truth is way more dangerous than something that is 90% a lie or 100% a lie. Way more dangerous because it's so much harder to recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is all the way all the heresies in the church are usually. Yeah. Right. right. Like it's, right. you know, he's completely God, but like not, not really man. Yeah. Like, or not vice exactly. versa, but right. like they don't come out and, you know, call a fish a frog or anything like that. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I, I, I think that they're running out of, they're running out of road on the transgenderism thing because the ask is just so big. Yeah. If you don't have acquaintance with what it is, you know, you don't have acquaintance. You've never been to the Castro district in San Francisco. This is very abstract. Okay. You don't have acquaintance with a problem. It's much easier to be like, well, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's not really a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're asking somebody who has lived his whole life as a male to conceive of somebody else being like, maybe I need to turn into a girl, that's a much bigger ask. Mm-hmm. So this is something where, and in, in if we talk about the, the top is wobbling more, I think we're dealing with a lot more wobble in the sense that secularization as a process is always a dead-end process. Societies don't survive that revolt against nature mm-hmm. because they can't sustain families. I mean, we see family formation plummeting. We see birth rates plummeting. They just don't sustain themselves. But ideologically, I'm saying we're having trouble sustaining ourselves because we're being asked to believe increasingly 
obviously absurd things. I'm not saying that they're running out of road like demanding consent or that institutions like here are things here's an here's a larger number of things you won't be able to say on LinkedIn by next year. I'm not saying that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I'm saying in people's own minds they're running out of road because if something is baked in then if you're going to tell me it's not it, that's kind of hard. Yeah. If I know something about it, that's that's a lot to ask of me. Yeah. So where does this go? This is going in a direction that because it's unsustainable is going to be very difficult for everyone. So there's a vision that I think is very popular, particularly among uh, conservative Christians at this point of exit or departure. This got summed up and written up as the Benedict option, yep. but a lot mm-hmm. of people are trying to go there in their personal lives. And the difficulty is that when things fall apart, they don't fall apart selectively just for the bad people that you don't like, right? So he maketh it, it to rain on the just and the unjust also goes in the opposite direction, right? Mm-hmm. If you are in the vicinity of Sodom and Gomorrah, at the time of destruction, you also have problems, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the woes that you get in Jeremiah concerning everybody in Jerusalem, right? And and when Jesus is talking about what's going to prove to be the destruction of the temple 40 years later, um, that's going to be bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's bad for all the ladies who are pregnant or nursing in that day, regardless of whether they supported the war against Rome or not. Mm -hmm. So it's bad for everybody. It's going to be difficult for everybody. What I mean by that specifically is that when a society falls apart religiously, it also falls apart in lots of other ways. And we don't just have to talk about crime rising in our cities or something like that we're talking about competency whether the people you're dealing with are reliable Mm -hmm. whether the people you're dealing with are stable so you're trying to hire people well when you're hiring people you're looking particularly for are they going to show up Mm -hmm. Um, are they going to be on a substance when they show up are they going to show up consistently for three weeks in a row Uh, is their resume an actual representation of who they are or not? And not just within the parameters of you, you know, because you cleaned the bathroom at your last job, you describe yourself as supervising, you know, maintenance Mm -hmm. uh, for the entire facility, you know, or something like that. Like not standard exaggeration, but um, did this even happen? Did Mm -hmm. you go to school there? Yeah. So So, you're, you're, you're thinking secularism as it affects institutions as it affects families educational institutions as it does this it's going to lead towards incompetency in a lot of different areas people who have no sense of right or wrong what is weighty versus what is trivial will also prove to be unfaithful in numerous ways and not to think that their unfaithfulness is strange. Mm -hmm. Whether their unfaithfulness to their spouse or their unfaithfulness to the job that they've been hired to do or whatever, right? So when, in in the same way that um, the fruit of the Spirit is manifold, right? So there's one fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians 6, and then there's all these different qualities or, or attitudes, right? 
self-control and and gentleness and all this stuff, patience, all this going together. In the same way, when sin manifests itself, springing from basic unbelief, when it manifests itself, it's going to manifest itself in multiple ways organically related to each other. So that I'm dealing with simultaneously, you are unfaithful to your spouse, you are inattentive to your responsibilities, you are indifferent to the fact that I'm upset about that mm -hmm. uh, as your boss, whatever it might be. It the, These things, all they all go together. I can't for very long maintain a society that is simultaneously um, technologically highly sophisticated, which means extremely high maintenance levels. I mean, mm -hmm. everything requires maintenance that is technologically sophisticated, not to speak of inventing new things. But can I even keep going the things that I'm going? Can I keep the systems going that are going? So what kind of conversations are going on like in the secular world? So let's say, you know, let's take the kind of the church out of it. Let's yeah. say, because, you know, I'm thinking of someone like Jordan Peterson. Yeah. You know, he's an interesting thinker. Yeah. He's not Christian. He's sure. got some Christian influence. We talked a little bit earlier about like Joe Rogan. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of leaders that are certainly not Christian. Um part of that secular movement, but they're, they're also having these conversations within themselves of they recognize fractures and they recognize issues. So what kind of, what kind of debates are they having within, within that realm as they try to sustain civilization falling apart? Right. Um, but they're doing it from kind of the outside from us, right? From out, not from a Christian perspective. So what's going on kind of over there? I, they're having, they're having particularly among our elites, which are so heavily influenced by, if not um, identical to Silicon Valley, they're having discussions about technological solutions. So if I need to maintain cities by having smart cities, then how do I go about doing that, right? Um, it's it's part of the reason why China is not just a political antagonist for us. It's also, in terms of our elites, something that they increasingly ape. Hmm. It's one reason that when we're talking about social credit scores, I wouldn't be surprised to see those things introduced more and more. They're, they're informally there when you are being graded in a job application or a college application on the basis of your use of certain vocabulary, mm -hmm. um, your racial status, your gender status, et cetera. Those are social credit scores. That has nothing to do with whether you're good at the work. Mm-hmm or you are going to be an intelligent contributor to that college program. That has to do with whether you are politically and socially acceptable. So they're gonna seek technological solutions and the way that humans are managed within that technologically informed society, whether they are trying to say, okay, renewable energy, um, whatever technological solution they might have to an energy problem or a maintenance problem or whatever is that those human beings will be managed as if they are technological assets too. So do you have the correct score? Do you have the correct power level? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the same way that you would think about which kind of phone you want to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I've got some friends that are more, more corporate, yeah. you know, engineers and such. Yeah. And they'll talk about, you know, that that's part of uh, even their, their bonus structure Yep. is they'll have to, they'll have to fill out things of like how much, how much meat do you, eat throughout a week yeah. um how far do you drive into work you know all these kind of things and that now gets fed into how they're going to be reviewed for promotions Correct. for bonuses for south for races yeah so in the west i mean a social credit score such as is already being implemented right mm -hmm. 
is n- probably not going to be implemented in the same absolutely centralized way that the Chinese do mm-hmm. because our society is just not structured the same way. It would probably be most likely implemented in connection with your employment because that is an absolute necessity, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, people will talk about, well, we're going to have a central bank digital currency and then they debate, do we already have that, blah, blah, blah. Well, we already have a social credit system, but it's being implemented through your HR department. Mm-hmm. It's not being implemented directly yeah. by the United States government necessarily. So they, they're they looking for technical solutions, at least Silicon Valley, some yeah. of those elites. Yeah. Um, what about those that are like in the educational realm? Yeah. You know, they go and they get their, their PhD in education and they've right. got, um, you know, they've, they've got a good desire for proper education, yeah. but they've already kind of eaten the apple as far as but we don't want the old fashioned humanities. We don't want that old moral code of, yeah. of white Christianity yeah, and pa- right, right. the patri- uh, no. patriarchy. Yeah. So w- what are, what are they kind of striving for? What are their solutions? You know, they're educated, you know, might get in the way of their education, but mm-hmm. they're educated. They're looking at the last 20 years mm-hmm. and these huge shifts and they're applauding. Yeah. You know, where do they want to go in the future? Do they just want to keep going in this direction? Do they want to pause, stop right here? We've reached utopia. Like what's what, what's going through their mind? Ideologically, they're applauding. Um, non-ideologically, in as much as there is still standardized testing, which was originally created to measure uh, populations generally unknown to um, whoever is receiving the application. So the IQ test is going to come out of Stanford in order to measure uh, out of the psychology department in order to measure the applicants and to see who it is that's going to be coming to Stanford. Because Stanford doesn't have all the traditional feeders that a Northeastern college of similar standing would have where your knowledge of who you're dealing with is much more personal, mm. right? So these impersonal merit-based systems are going to be completely done away with. I mean, I would be shocked. So SAT, ACT. And and measurement of them is already done away with in most cases. Mm -hmm. But I'm also going to get rid of now even um, advanced placement to the extent that that's not already a joke in any given school um, because it is testing disparity, racial testing disparity particularly, that is irksome to our elites that want control over everything. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to get rid of that. And when I get rid of that, then the education system will just become very transparently sort of like essentially a daycare. Mm -hmm. Like this is the holding tank where we have people until they're released onto the job market. Mm -hmm. Right. Rather than challenging them or changing them, we're going to hold them here until we can put them somewhere else, right? They're going to go, they're going to go to get a job or they're going to move into some higher form of education or something like that. But our job is basically to pass them through. This has always been a dysfunction of our educational system. This is John Taylor Gatto's complaint about New York public education 40 going on 50 years ago now, right? It's just that my job, he says, as a public school teacher is to pass people through the system. This is No Child Left Behind. Before No Child Left Behind. This is long before, but No Child Left Behind is informed by the same idea that somehow, contrary to nature, everybody's going to be educated to the same standard. And if they're not educated to the same standard, if I still have testing disparities, I need to throw money at the problem. Yeah. I remember, so I was, uh, I studied psychology in business and undergrad. And I regretted, well, I regretted my psychology study. It was terrible. Um, And I remember I was taking, I forget which class it was in psychology, but we had this discussion 
about how I forget what the graduation rate, like, you know, freshmen that come in, let's call it 75% graduate yeah, or sure. 80% right, graduate, right, right. 25% fall out. Right. And the whole discussion was how do we raise that to closer to a hundred percent? And I, I wasn't usually the lone dissenter, but at this part, I was like, this is good, right? Like if a hundred percent graduate, then what have I accomplished? I've just, I've just a fish in a stream down the yes, river. Like right. the fact, like someone has to fail or right. else this is way too easy. Yeah. Um, I was the lone dissenter in the class. I just kind of, they just kind of moved on with the discussion, but um, yeah. And I wasn't thinking in these ideological terms or sure, anything sure, like that. Sure. I could just, yeah. once again, just kind of sense like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. education has to be competitive enough that some people don't make it or else everyone's going to be a doctor. And I don't want just anyone operating on me. Like <laughs> someone has to fall out and be like, this is too tough. Yeah. Well, and, and you recently had, um, there is a, one of those sort of like flushing kind of classes, it's usually been in a in a pre-med curriculum, organic chemistry, mm-hmm. one of those classes where you had a very old school guy at Columbia University in New York, um, a white male, unfortunately for him, and he was still running this orgo class and people are washing out of it and they're like, well, it's too hard. You know, like that seems to them like a legitimate complaint. That, that erasure of standards is an erasure of the idea that according to nature life is unequal Hmm. i'm not as fast as you you're not at your hand-eye coordination is not as good as mine Um, i'm dumber than you whatever it is that nature is unequal Hmm. right that when we're talking about equality in some kind of you know i don't know declaration of independence kind of way we're talking about equality before god we're not talking about equality in this life or on this earth and that when we do try to make that happen we're always revolting against nature because we're trying to force something so it's not just is this worthwhile if everybody can do it Mm -hmm. if 100 percent of people graduate is that a degree that i want Mm -hmm. because nobody was challenged obviously because yeah. 100% of people did it just fine, yeah. right? Um, do I want that degree? It's also that, yes, if 100% of people who enter go from pre-med all the way to being brain surgeons, do I ever want to take the risk of getting brain surgery? Mm-hmm. No, I do not. Because I have no idea whether that person can actually do it. Yeah. One 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 travesty, and I, I'll be careful with the statistics I give because I haven't look this up, but I have a good friend who went through med school and he was telling me this and he was giving me all the numbers and stuff. So it wasn't, he wasn't just kind of flippantly talking about this. He's like, this is wild. And he was talking about the MCAT scores. I think that's what what it is uh, to get into med school. Yep. That's right. And he said, listen, there's a spectrum and it's a huge spectrum at what your score needs to be for you to get into med school, depending on your gender and your Uh race. And I'll just say, I won't go through all of them, but the highest is, um, uh, Asian ma- males, you have to have the highest <laughs> score. So if you're an Asian yeah, male, right. you have to have a higher score than a white male yes, and a right, much yeah. higher score as you go down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. I remember that, that blew my mind. <laughs> and at the time I was like, I have to change some of my doctors, right? Because I'm looking, I'm going, my doctor could have had low scores all the way through. I need to go find an Asian male because they had to always be the best. And their whole point yeah. was they're trying to reverse, they, they categorize as, well, we're trying to reverse, you know, institutional racism and all this right. kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you just created a system where I'm going to go search for an Asian male because you're, you're creating a system where they have to be the best. So what's happening is that the way that that is connected to 
secularization as a process is that the the less that I'm familiar with anything being a given, like um, why are men this percentage of plumbers? Why are men this percentage of brain surgeons? Why are women this percentage of this profession that is basically like caring for another human being? Why, why are only women mothers? Yeah. <laughs> is that it gives me an incessant gap between what I observe and what I think is actually achievable. So it lets people say things, and this is kind of a sad version of the question that you posed earlier about the woman who wants to be a mother without a dad, but there's currently um, a push that I've seen in various advertisements connected to sports to end childhood cancer. Now on on one level, it's like, who, who thinks that's a bad idea? Mm-hmm. On another level, who believes that this is something we're actually going to achieve? But the answer to the second question is lots of people. Hmm. Because lots of people believe every problem is due to somebody else conspiring to keep it in existence. Hmm. If it's a problem, it's because somebody hasn't tried hard enough or spent enough or been disabused of his privilege enough or whatever the problem is. And so it's achievable. It gives us a sense of godlike capacity. Mm-hmm. And not only will that, in this case, with a campaign to end cancer, disappoint us, but it will also cause us currently to, to engage in all kinds of malinvestment and hucksterism. It concerns fundraising, so there are going to be grifters, all profiting off the fact that you can't tell the difference because you have no acquaintance with God or nature between what should be and what is. Because hmm. you're not... You you have never been taught that what is is just what you deal with in life. Yeah. You know? And hence why there's always this notion of, it goes kind of back to why why people aren't, they're not upset that you're a pastor or yeah. a Christian. Yeah. Um, but they'll kind of look at it and it's like, oh, that's good. Like you kind of, you kind of like help people feel better you sometimes. You help people feel better. But like, let's go talk to like the serious guy. Let's go talk to the doctors. Let's go yeah. talk to the engineers. Right. Because like, those are the people that make life better. Why? Because, well, life is whatever happens here over this 80 years and maybe 120 years if, if science has its way yes. or maybe maybe 200 years, right? right? Because yeah. once again, if you're in touch with nature, you say, well, so-and-so dies here. Oh, everybody dies. And therefore these these kind of eternal questions, you know, of, of what is no longer trivial, but what is real and yeah. meaningful, you know, those are going to be the most important aspects of your life. And therefore you'll find time for a devotion with your family before dinner. The pastor gets figured in this process if he's not if he's not an obviously hostile figure because he's promoting reactionary things. Hmm. Okay. If that's not the case, then he's something like an unlicensed mental health counselor slash social worker. Hmm. So I was involved um we don't have an LCMS church in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, so I, when that train wreck happened back in February, I got, I got a bunch of really wonderful people to give a lot of money in the name of Lutherans to the people of East Palestine, working through local people. That was really great. And that was a wonderful thing. And you always meet the best people when you're asking them to give money to people they don't know. Mm -hmm. You meet, you meet the best people and you, you talk to the best people. Um, 
there have been all kinds of articles coming out recently. I've I've kept the Google alert for East Palestine up the whole time. I get one every day. So most people have kind of forgotten that that happened and how to pronounce East Palestine. But there have been lots of articles over the time since then of like some journalist flies from Los Angeles, has to fly into Pittsburgh and then rent a car and drive and go to East Palestine. And they're like, wow, churches do a lot of stuff. Hmm. That's really nice. But the role there is not the role is not the reason that a Christian church exists. They're thinking of Christian churches as kind of built-in, super-powered social welfare agencies, especially in rural areas. That's as much as they can imagine a church needs to exist for. If I were if I were in touch with nature, I would be able to say the church is there for the same reason that the funeral parlor is there. The church is there for the same reason that the philosopher is there. The church is there for the same reason that you feel something when you listen to certain songs, because it's talking about the deepest realities of life and giving you the truth about them. That's why there are churches. That's mm-hmm. what they're for. That's what they do, right? Um, if people aren't in any kind of contact with those realities or can quickly ignore them because on to next, you know, thing they can heat up in the microwave, thing they can watch, whatever, then yeah, they have no concept why there are churches. Yeah. But I think more often, honestly, I mean, I don't want to put this on everybody. Uh, churches also don't care about a lot of these things. Like I would say, um, I, I like to tell this not to like put everyone to shame, but just make you aware. Like, so growing up, don't go to church, don't go to church, don't go to church, don't go to church. I think I went to church maybe for like a funeral a couple of times. And one time my buddy, his grandpa was a Pentecostal pastor. I had to go to church there. So that was wild. From zero to a zero <laughs> thousand. They're like screaming. Well, but okay, I my it, my impression and my like befogged fifteen year old brain was like, they're really into this. Yeah. You know, like, and when you're a young guy, like if anybody is intense about things, you kind of respect it. You know? Yeah. But um, so I finally started going to church. I'm in college, you know. But I'm I'm sitting there waiting for my parents to come out of the store. This lady. This is the first time a Christian has ever tried to present the gospel to me. This lady takes a track that she's carrying with her. She's Mennonite. This is central Pennsylvania. We have these people. Not Amish, Mennonite. They drive cars. She slides the track across the bench to me and goes, here, this is for you. <laughs> that was it. You know, um, so so if we're not looking for these people and giving them a sense of what is real, then where do you think they're going to get it from? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. And if Lewis is not talking to Tolkien and other people at this time, when he's beginning to wonder these things as he's becoming somewhat dissatisfied with his previous... I mean, the guy went through a war and then a whole other decade and then became a Christian. But what if those people are not talking to him at that time? Does he still become a Christian? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe. But God works through means. God works through means. So he would still have to read a Christian or hear a Christian, even if he doesn't have these friends who are explaining things to him and discussing things with him. So if the means are not there, the people are not magically moving from 
oh, I really don't like it, you know, when this happens, but I don't, I don't, I can't even put it into words why or whatever. They're not going to move from that to Jesus Christ is the son of God. Yeah. Magically. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the role of church now in a, in a secular type culture? Yeah. Church has to, first of all, just not accept that all of this was good, this process of revolt against nature and against authority. But church needs to accept that that's the battlefield now, rather do, than I. You go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say. Do you think that most people have their finger on that? No, no. I I think that a, a there's a combination of two things at the same time, and they're both fairly inarticulate. They get articulated to me personally as I talk to people in the church, which is a fairly broad exposure um, around our country. Is the two inarticulate things. One is complete mystification as to what happened. Mm-hmm. And I get that most often from, if I can say it this way, normal people. They have no idea what happened. The church used to be full and now it's not. They honestly don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. They have not, they have not inside the church been given a vocabulary for everyday life decisions that spiral into my grandkids have never even been in, into a church. Mm-hmm. They don't know how that might be connected to education or family or anything. It's just all like the church was full. I always brought my kids to church. Now nobody goes. I don't get it. Right. I think it's from the fifties for every one person we convert, we lose six. (laughs) And the one, whenever I talk about that statistic, it's like pushing home. That's not normal. Like that's the Christian church didn't serve out, survive, you know, multiple civilizations over the course of 1500 years. No, like that's never been the case. So that's, that's brand new. That's but. not that that that's not that's not how people live. Yeah, you know, I mean, my my um my folks are both from Western Pennsylvania originally, um, so I had to be a Steelers fan growing up. But I grow up in Central Pennsylvania. It's not really Pittsburgh territory at all. I'm a Pittsburgh everything fan. I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. That's not why because my parents were. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not normal for you to be like, well, my parents are Pittsburgh Pirates fans. I think I love the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. That's not normal. TV told you that, or you're just being weird. But it's not normal for people to grow up one way and be completely different. Yeah. That's why if we're going to talk about, well, the way that we're going to save our church or our school or whatever is just by converting giant numbers of people, it just doesn't yeah. statistically happen. I, I get very uh, turned off and maybe at some point I could be swayed. I'm 32, but you know, by, it seems like there's this, this hyper push for evangelism Yeah, to where like the response is we're losing six to one. Most of them are our own kids. Yeah. So like maybe the answer is let's quit talking about theology or like, let's quit rooting down the creeds and all of these kind of foundational mm-hmm. things, which have been lost, but rather like everyone get out there and go talk to your neighbors and go mm-hmm. pass things, you know, yeah, pass things out. Yeah. And it just, it feels like, we're we're being evangelized because we're sending people out that are not properly prepared. You know, they're not learning it in the household. They're not getting proper education. They're not getting proper teaching in the church. These are not habits in the household. And the only news we have for them is like, God loves you. And now like go tell 10 people about it and go be like a door to door salesman for the church. And if that's, and that's, that's a little bit of a, that's an overstatement for, you know, but 
If you do that, that's a recipe for disaster. I don't think it's an overstatement because if I were doing, let's say something that still often does door-to-door sales is like uh, home solar panels. Mm-hmm. If you were going to sell home solar panels, guess what? You would probably know more than two things about solar panels. Mm-hmm. You would be like this solar panel theology nerd. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where are they made? What are they made out of? How does this relate to my electricity bill? If I want to get off grid, how many panels do I need? If I just want to pay back into the grid, how many panels do I need? You have to know all that stuff. We take people who are maybe less catechized than they've ever been before because that's old fashioned or that's boring or that's whatever, right? And then we send them out and they're like, they just know that they're supposed to tell people to buy solar panels. They don't know anything else about solar panels. Mm. So, yeah, we, we had a, it was a, a district I was in previously, yeah. but I remember we had, uh, this, this guy did this on a couple occasions. Um, but one point we had this like real articulate apologist come in. He was mm-hmm. from, um, he was from a big city and he came over and, mm-hmm. and he gave this like really good lecture. And this guy yeah. stood up at the end and he's like, he's like, well, I've always said you, I can summarize the Bible in four words. We, we sin and God saves. And like, it completely undermined the whole point where this guy was talking <laughs> about like knowing your stuff, knowing yeah. like what is creation, <laughs> like what is proper order? What is, what is the good, uh-huh. the true and the beautiful and all these yeah. things. And he completely missed the point. He's like. I can summarize the book, the entire Bible in four words. I said, well, if God could have done it in four words, he would have done it in four words, but he did it in a lot more than that. So <laughs> 66 like- 66 books. Yeah. But it's it's that kind of notion that let me let me go get, you know, let me go spend, you know, eight hours a week studying my biology class. Yeah. And let me just memorize those four words for Christianity. It's like, if you take Christianity this seriously and think it's this deep, right. and then your just biology course yeah, is a exactly. hundredfold more serious. That's right. Which one's the college kid going to take more seriously? Yeah. Say, that was that was fun going to VBS when I was a kid, but like now I've moved on to serious business. I got to go <laughs> save the world, you know, by being an engineer. Right. Exactly. And it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's that that is inarticulate, and the answer that we give to people is we just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about why it happens. And that the more deeply you are indoctrinated at anything, especially when you're a kid, the more likely you're going to retain it when you're older. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm free to not care about what's happening with the NFL. I don't. But if somebody was ever like, are you a Baltimore Ravens fan? I'd be like, no. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because it's deeply ingrained. Right? And that's just the way human beings are. That's an observation about nature, not just about indoctrination into Christianity. I think the other thing that I hear a lot that is fairly articulate, and this is more perhaps especially a part of the clergy, is not mystification. They've been complaining about parents not being involved enough in confirmation students forever. I mean, that's like perennial. Mm -hmm. But is that the clergy feel hopeless about the task before them. And part of that is a certain mourning or confusion over what was lost, that the job used to be fundamentally different, that even though we didn't have a state church system in the United States, we had the same practically captive population that a state church situation presumes. And in a state church situation, you don't have to worry or think like a church planter where you're like, where is all of this going to come from? Mm -hmm. Right. There's going to be money. There's going to be a building. There's going to be some amount of people unless you just completely just blow everything up. So your job is to 
have a good sermon and conduct the service in a good way and teach a good Bible class and make your visits and stuff like that. And all of that is still true, but if it's so much easier to fall away, like, and in fact, it's socially and perhaps financially advantageous to your people to fall away, you're finding the people and then teaching them the things that they need to know and inspiring them to commit to this organization that is increasingly socially marginalized all requires more from you. Mm -hmm. And either the confusion about what you even lies before you, as well as frustration at attempting something you've never had to do before. What, yeah. So, so what do you think of, um, I think Chesterton puts it this way. He's like every, you know, there's been so many times where they've kind of padded down the dirt where they finally buried Christianity and yeah. it pops up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's, I think he's got this chapter, the five deaths of uh, Christianity. <laughs> yeah, he says, right, they always right. think it dies. They thought it was part of the Roman empire and then Rome died and Christianity survived. And then yeah. they thought it was, you know, part of the medieval age and the medieval age died and Christianity right. continued. And then he also says that any times there, there's this kind of death and revival resurrection, it's always kind of this this younger generation that all of a sudden like explodes out of nowhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, do you sense that any of that, of course it could happen, but yeah. are you optimistic? Um, one thing I notice about we're both in our thirties yeah. is everything you're talking about is not a surprise to us because we, we grew up in it. We watched all of our Correct. friends kind of walk away from it. Yeah, we were right. probably tempted to walk away from yeah. it. You kind of came into it. Yeah. Um, but we, we, there's no assumption from us that like everyone's just Christian. Christian, like we know that it's it's a full blown battle, and it's yeah. it's a philosophical battle, it's a uh, economic battle, and yeah. the way you run your family kind of battle. Right. And, like it, it's there's a battlefield where all aspects of life meet, and that's where Christianity is holding its ground. Right. So that inarticulate thing that I just described in the clergy is the cause of great and and very often expressed hopelessness and sadness on the part of the church, even publicly, right? So this is mm -hmm. not just people privately saying, I don't know what happened. This is people saying like, I don't know, it's going to be really bad. Like, I'm glad I'm going to be retired by then. Okay. That is something that I think you just have to be prepared for a lot of things that seemed like they were always going to be here to die. Mm -hmm. I don't presume that unless I do something about it, what we would describe as confessional Lutheranism is still going to exist in the United States in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Because all of those forms of rebirth throughout church history, yes, I'm, I'm not just optimistic, I'm certain that the spread of the gospel will prevail. It prevails in Acts despite lots of other conditions and vastly fewer resources than we have today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm not worried about that, okay? Um, my concern, and I think the stewardship that we have, is that we want what we have actually to exist. And unless we put forth some kind of effort, it won't, and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Previous generations put forth effort, either to establish it or to perpetuate it. If effort is not put forth, if you just want to say like, well, I don't know what's going on, or it's too crazy for me, or uh, we sinned, God, you know, God saves, whatever, then just be prepared to go away, mm -hmm. you know? Because from my vantage point, obviously plenty has already gone away. Mm -hmm. Plenty that existed like 20 years ago, let alone 50, right? So if it can go away quickly, then obviously things that I think are always going to be there could also go away. Mm-hmm.
So what kind of things do you think that you, me, yeah. the church in general, Christians, what are some of the, like, the top things that you think we need to be doing? Uh, number one, we have to talk about the things that actually are occurring. So if we don't talk about the being checked out on your phone, or we don't talk about the family dynamic stuff, it doesn't make it go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I would just say, generally, we usually don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that that relates to the revolt against nature generally comes home to us in what has been portrayed as the battle of the sexes. Sometimes this gets discussed ideologically as feminism, but I find those kinds of things often sort of useless if that individual person doesn't isn't like, I'm a feminist. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, fine, then I will talk to you about a movement or an ideology. What I'm more interested in is like the way that you and your husband interact. Mm-hmm. If that never gets discussed in a sermon or a Bible class or anything like that, then guess what? It'll still be there and someone else will instruct them about how that dynamic is supposed to operate. So you have to talk about the things that actually exist. How would you speak about that, you know, let's say in a sermon or a Bible a study, you know, maybe a sermon, so you're talking to a wider yeah. audience. How would you go about talking about the family dynamics, what yeah. a role of a husband is, role of a wife is? Yeah. I would say that you have to bring up a principle for testing truth that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount, which is that practice always shows you more than words, right? Or John talks this way in his first letter when he talks about, let us not love in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. So in order to apply that principle to family, I want to say, I mean, it depends on the text. If the text is more, um, like from an epistle, epistles are usually laying down principles. If it's from a story, I can use the dynamics of the story, for example. Like you have a really weird family dynamic where Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard and goes and complains to Jezebel, and Jezebel handles the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So whatever the text is, I can bring in that Bible story or I can bring in those family dynamics and say, you know, you need to you need to think about what you're actually saying to each other and how you relate to each other, what kind of body language you're using when you do that and whether that person has your full attention. Um, because part of the reason that you've been given different verbs in Ephesians 5 mm-hmm. is because you need different things from each other. Love and respect. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The man doesn't need to know that he is unconditionally loved and then break down crying when I say that to him. Mm-hmm. He needs to feel that he's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. The woman needs different things. If I either don't talk about that or I talk about it and I kind of talk about the man and the woman like they're interchangeable, like they both have the same responsibilities and need the same things, then the people will rightfully tune me out when I talk about stuff like that. So. This is also the church being willing to discuss in its sermons and in its teaching things that are occurring today rather than simply like, okay, it's Reformation Sunday. We hate the Pope. You know, like, (laughs) cool. Guess who else hates the Pope? Like most Roman Catholics who go to mass every Sunday at this point, right? (laughs) So that's fine. Like, great. We hate the Pope too. Let's bring the Catholics in. It's going to be so cozy. We all hate the Pope together. I need to talk about the stuff that is occurring in these people's lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I don't assume, I don't, I don't think pastors ever should have assumed this, but I think this was part of our cultural condition of assuming Christianity would always be here. 
I don't assume that the people need to listen to me. So I need to work very hard at presenting the truths of the scripture very clearly and in a coherent, flowing way because I'm competing with Netflix and I'm competing with everything else on their phone for their hearts.、Mm-hmm. So I want to do my absolute best because that's what they deserve. And you know who knows that is like Disney and Pixar、mm-hmm. and, and, and every, every other production studio knows that getting your material into somebody's heart deserves the best. So I need to give the best and I need to be pertinent. And that doesn't mean relevant, doesn't mean that you are watering it down to the lowest common denominator. That's very often like if you see a church called Relevant Church, like run the other way,、mm-hmm. they're not going to teach you the truths of scripture. They're going to teach you a couple things and then leave you there. Yeah. Relevant means here are the things actually going on in the lives of God's people. Here's how God's word applies to that.、Mm-hmm. And I mean, for that task, The church needs to just get over the fact that it has lost so much.、Mm-hmm. Just accept you got pushed. You're like the Union Army at the end of day one of Gettysburg. You already lost the town of Gettysburg. So now you need to figure out how you're going to win this battle because、mm-hmm. you already lost a bunch of stuff and they're already in the north. So just get over it and now start from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What else? Um, in addition to talking about things that are actually happening, you also need an attitude that understands the meaning of the ascension. So, if I think that we neglect the incarnation in our preaching, I think we also neglect the ascension, particularly in the way that we think about missions. And this is something I'm going to be talking to the pastors about on Monday and Tuesday is that you have to, you have to realize that when Jesus wants to really get things going, he ascends into heaven. Because we're thinking sort of like an army that is going down to defeat, and he is currently reigning over everything. So, the fact of his session at the Father's right hand is a fact concerning his control. So, I don't have to feel like a secular person that things are under my control or they're not, and I need to seize control. Right? Think about just the, the meaning of the term secular. It has to do with the Latin word seculum, which is sometimes translated a world, but it really means an age.、Hmm. A secular person is theologically somebody who believes and lives only for this age. That's their problem, right? It's like what Jesus refers to in the Gospels as the sons of this age, which will pass away,、mm-hmm. right? That's, that's why what they love is revealed as trivial. At best, and at worst, is revealed as deceptive and idolatrous. If I understand that he is ruling over this age and the life of the world to come, then that should engender a certain fearlessness in my heart.、Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that this gets summed up when Paul talks about, he asks for the prayers of the church and says, that I may speak boldly as I ought. Or it says in other places, with boldness. Now, the word there is strictly speaking, parecia is the word for the way that a citizen speaks.、Hmm. Okay. Because in an ancient Greek assembly, the citizen is allowed to come in and he can just say whatever. Whereas the guy who is a resident alien, he's a foreigner, he's a you know, merchant from another city, he's there to sell stuff in Athens, he can't just get up and talk. 
the citizen can get up and talk because he has no fear. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be punished. This is one of the most basic versions of free speech. Yeah. He's not going to be punished for saying what's true. Okay. So in the world, the church and particularly her preachers need to act like they are citizens in this sense that their king is reigning. So you don't have to worry when you say what he wants you to say. Mm-hmm. If you're a herald of the king, then you just say the things that the king says. Yeah. It's like, it's not that hard. Do you find that people overthink that? Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, I mean, our people are very worried about, and I don't I don't like to guilt people with uh, kind of, I think it's kind of like the Protestant version of monasticism is this obsession <laughs> with evangelism, you know, all yeah. the time. Like, yeah. why don't you... Why don't you awkwardly tell the waitress that Jesus loves her as you, you know, don't actually give her a decent tip and act like a normal human to her or whatever, yeah. you know? So it it, it it is, it's it's the modern form of the Christian life. Like, yeah. Like fasting or asceticism or, you know, devotions with your family, like yeah. all of those kind of things. Yeah, that like, all we don't goes need to talk away. about that because that's works righteousness, but, but write a letter to your waitress. The stuff that's actually sort of like spiritual maintenance, like mm-hmm. do you clean your gutters and cut your grass and fix hinges when they start, you know, uh, slipping a little bit, we neglect that stuff and we replace it with, are you on the lookout for a brand new house? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, yeah, you're going to make a really great real estate investment and that's going to be really good for you in the future, but you need to fix the hinges and cut the grass and clean the gutters. Mm-hmm. So a lot of your life is not going to be telling people outside of your family or your friend group about Christ, even though that's going to be part of it. And with your children, it's completely not optional. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, What seems like maintenance or like boring, like you learn to control your appetites or you learn to pray in a regular way, or you learn to pray with your family. That's all you got to do that first. Mm -hmm. And then you will be much stronger for whatever other purposes, even evangelistic purposes God has for you. Um, but I think that I think that acceptance of this is where we are also involves the church reassessing what is actually working and what is not. And for that, you have to be, and sometimes there have been people that there have been people that told me that um, when I was in college, you should either work on Wall Street or you should be a lawyer. And what I did with that was I didn't work on Wall Street and I wasn't a lawyer, but I try to apply the same energy Mm -hmm. to the problems of the church that if I were trying to make a ton of money, everybody would be like, oh yeah, obviously, like he, like he just go, he's like, you know, he's going 24 seven on this because, because he's trying to make a ton of money. Like, no, I don't work for a hedge fund and I don't live in Connecticut, but you know, like, I think this is more important. Yeah. But the thing about those guys that I do enjoy, and I still will dabble in those things, um, and I particularly really, there's a podcast I really like called Masters in Business, because this guy just interviews all of these complete, you know, psychos, like has devoted his entire life to shorting industries in, you know, the United States of America, which has been a good bet for like 45 years, right? Mm -hmm. What I like about them is they're focused. Yeah. They act like what they're doing matters. Yeah. In order to do that, they all have to be brutally honest also about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not an insult when you say, what you're doing is horrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. If it matters, 
uh, D1 football coaches talk like that. Hedge fund managers talk like that. I wish that at least the pastors among themselves could talk more like that. Mm-hmm. Instead of being hopeless, we could just say, what I've been doing is horrible, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Not that like a D1 coach that goes one in 10, you're going to get fired now. But what are you going to do to do it better next time? I mean, like, why can't we talk that way? So I think a big hindrance is that the church behaves with the things that God has given it in a way that doesn't reflect its importance. Mm-hmm. And we often talk that way about the like about the service, about the liturgy, that if you actually believe Christ is physically present, you will behave in a reverent way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Yeah. But that also applies to how the church handles the money that people have given to it, how the pastor handles the gifts of speaking or teaching or counseling or caring that God has given him that you want to behave. I mean, you don't have to wake up at 4 a.m. to get into Manhattan to get on your Bloomberg terminal, right? You don't have to keep the same schedule that that guy does. But why are the sons of this age so diligent Mm -hmm. with things that go away with this age Mm -hmm. that are passing away? And with the things of the life eternal, we're like, I don't know. Nobody likes it. Nobody. I mean, like, what is complaining going to do? Yeah. Once again, does it go back to, I mean, just people kind of accept Christianity as like, well, this is this is good for me, yeah. um, but it's not really what it claims to be, right? It's not really about heaven and hell and all that is good, be- yeah. good true and beautiful yeah. and the antithesis of yeah. that, right? Because yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's certainly moments or, or times as you know, from a pastor mm-hmm. or just in your Christian life where that becomes very secondary, the trivial stuff kind of takes place. Yeah. And then there's other moments where you start to look, and this is certainly what brought brought me into wanting to be a pastor because yeah. I looked and I just, it was just became striking all of a sudden of there's very opposite philosophies that I'm watching take place within the people that I hang out with. Yeah. And it just seemed like one was very healthy and one was, was yeah. I mean, just yeah, yeah, completely yeah, yeah. poisonous. Right. And if that's true, mm-hmm. then that battlefield is a fight worth fighting for. Totally. And similar to you, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at necessarily wall street, but mm-hmm. what drew me away from my previous profession was I said, I want something like Lord of the Rings. Like I want to be at the black gate. Like I want to fight, have a battle worth fighting for. I I hate, I absolutely despise and cannot stand when people treat Christianity like it's funny. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, when a sermon is largely a string of jokes, somewhat connected by Bible passages, and it's not because I don't have a sense of humor. In fact, unfortunately, I think almost everything is funny. Mm-hmm. And that's my problem. That's a character defect. The reason I don't like it is because not only it's not true, but why do you think anybody would want to be a Christian if going to church is sort of a joke with some guy saying weird stuff and sort of made up stories about little boys going fishing with their grandpa or something? And that's the substance of the sermon. Who cares about, why do you want anybody to care about that? And what what, what Lutheran pastor, or what pastor's a good enough comedian yeah. for that to be worth your time? Well, we're like, not, go on Netflix, like, like if yeah, that's right. what you're looking yeah, for, right, don't exactly. come to church. I know. Like, I if know. you're coming to church, you've got to look for, like, these are the battle plans for the battle that you've been called to. Like, these are your instructions. And I want to honor that in God's people, because the fact that they are in church at all in 2023 is not something that that I, like, look at them and I'm like, um, you know, 
you, you know, you guys, you know, whatever, um, you're going to be here. Who cares? Um, I'm angry at you. You know, like a lot of things that sometimes guys will say, well, I don't, I don't want my sons to be pastors because I've had too many rough meetings, you know, or like I've been mistreated by churches. Guess who else gets mistreated? The plumber and the guy that works in corporate that's not going to get promoted because of those scores that you talked about. Okay. Everybody's life is hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. The reason that you want to be a pastor, the reason that I want my sons to be pastors is because I never wake up and think to myself, is this worthwhile? Why would you want an easy life? I, yeah. Well, what what good is that going to do you? Yeah. It's just going to be an illusion. Yeah. And your point, it's, yeah, that we talked earlier, like, I appreciate that I had a background before entering yeah. into ministry that yeah, was totally. business related and whatnot. Yeah. Because I've got good buddies who are accountants. And yeah. I know, like, I talk to them when they have an 84-hour work week on average yeah, throughout right. tax season. Yeah. And then, you know, I might go to, a, you know, I might talk to other pastors that are belly aching because they had, they got a, a hospital call. How I many times? To, like three yeah. times in a year. Like, give me a break. I've never worked yeah. 84 hours a week yeah. over the course of three months. Well, you must be a bad pastor. I'm sorry. Right, right. But <laughs> it's like, life is tough. Yes, it is. Everyone works yes. hard. If you're a pastor or if you're a Christian. Right. Yeah, you've got to have a steel chin to some degree. Yeah. Everyone does. Right. The question is, the battles that you have to fight, are they worthwhile fighting? Right. And as a Christian, you have to say yes and thank God that I get to fight them. Yeah. Because if not, I'm going to fight mundane battles over trivial things. Yes. I will I will fight, you know, my soon-to-be ex-wife for custody of a family. No one told us how to do anything to help or to preserve because my pastor was busy telling jokes. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't you don't want that for anybody. So I want to honor the fact that they're in church at all in 2023 by giving them the absolute best. I mean, there, there's no, and it, that doesn't mean that you are the best or I am the best, but I am giving my best because what other fight is worth being spent for? Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to leave it all out there on the field because I know that's worthwhile. I don't wake up and think like, boy, I, you know, today I have to proclaim God's word to this family that hasn't darkened the door of a church in a million years, but their relative is dying. You know, like, I never think like, boy, is this really a good thing to do? Like, it's it's so clear, mm-hmm. right? And that was always part of the attraction of both the church, but also the ministry for me, is that the clarity of it is invigorating because what is happening when you don't have a knowledge of God is that everything is obscure, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul talks about this with the conscience in Romans 1, like the guy goes back and forth. Sometimes he's like, that was the best decision I ever made. And other times he's like, that's the worst decision I ever made. And the reason he's going back and forth is because he doesn't know God's truth. So once you know God's truth and you have clarity, you're not going back and forth all the time. Mm-hmm. Life's hard, but you're not going back and forth on it. And it becomes less stressful. Totally. Because you're just, like you said, you're not double-minded, right. you're single-minded. Yeah. And I forget who it was. It was someone describing a saint, and they said a saint's life is about, the uh, the defining factor of a saint is a saint's life is about one thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And which is so true, because <laughs> yeah. where does the anxiety kick in where it's like, well, I want to like, like, I want to serve God, but like also like, I want to serve manna. Yeah. Or manna, manna, I want yeah. money and, you know, I want all these things. And you sit there and like, well, what do I do? To right. Whereas like, if my job is to be a good Christian and that's what my life is about. Yeah. That's going to inform how I am as a father. It's going to inform how I am as whatever my vocation is. Right. Um, and everything just becomes centralized. And it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it means to some degree, it's much more simple. Yeah. Simple is not the same thing as easy. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Right. 
um, but simple generally means that it's actually going to be sustainable, mm-hmm. right? Um, that when it's complex and when you are pulled in a million different directions, which is part of the, that's always behind when the person says busy, busy, busy is distraction, confusion, conflict, tension, maybe even expressed like in their body by all the things going on is that their life is full of complexity and the reason that nature is something you can appeal to is because we're not we're not actually built to be complex the reason the guy that didn't go to enough school gets it in a way that the guy who probably went to too much school doesn't is because things that you need to know generally are not that complex mm-hmm. right um pastors know this because if you actually know what you're doing you can explain something that was presented maybe to you when you were taught it in seminary as complex in a simple way. That's mm-hmm. like the mark of a good teacher. Yeah, without watering it down. <laughs> without watering it down, you can be like divine nature, human nature, here's why, mm-hmm. right? You can do that because you actually know your stuff. So when you know your stuff, it's going to be simple. It's not going to be easy, but mm-hmm. it's going to be simple. Yeah. Yeah. So for Christians listening who are who are not pastors, you know, who are mothers, fathers, maybe grandparents yeah. or stuff, mm-hmm. what are things that they can do today as they look and especially like i think the grandparents especially they're looking they're they're in that boat that you talked about where they're looking and saying what happened they're yeah. mystified yeah what are things that they can tangibly do with the time that is given to them in order to help the church help their children and grandchildren at this time what are what are things that they can do okay time is a gift um, people are the priority you don't get people back um, and you don't get time with them back and then God's word is the means. So number one, realize time is a gift and start to rearrange your own schedule consciously because you've been probably driven by distraction into a lot of unconscious spending of time. Begin to think of your time consciously as God's gift rather than uh, as owed to all the different claims that are made on your time. And sometimes that gets very concrete as I had to get a different kind of phone or um, I had to get a different kind of job, but it's going to be worth it and you're not going to regret it. Right? What, are, what are some tangible things that you find that grow up in people's lives that are kind of chief distractions? I would say that, I mean, I, th- I think tech is the absolute biggest one for everybody of every age. So I love to kind of turn it on its head. And when somebody who's like 70 is checked out on their phone, I'll just be like this generation and their phones, you know, <laughs> yeah. because we we obviously like we go straight there with somebody who's a digital native i feel disgusting i just used that phrase but a digital native you know is is always on their phone they're always checked out they're terminally online okay fine but it's it's a problem for everybody um Mm -hmm. so the absolute most tangible one and people notice their brains changing how they process information what they notice um as soon as that's just something that they use kind of the way they used to use the old like phone on the wall Mm -hmm. where only when they need to find something by calling or take something in by receiving a call do they use it um if that's a physical separation if that's you get a dumb phone and now you use your computer for email whatever but that's generally the most powerful one for people today what do you do with that um I use it as um, time that otherwise would be empty. So I use it if I'm uh, waiting for something, I will check email then. But on a on a day-to-day basis where all my time is conscious, I just use it as a work tool. Mm-hmm. I'll get the comment. 
I'm not great, but I'm also not bad with my phone. I'm kind of mm-hmm. in the middle. We've, I've sure. made some conscious decisions in the past yeah. that have made me better. Yeah, sure. Um, but one comment I'll get a lot is you're like, man, you're terrible with your phone, right? Cause someone will text and I'll get back to them like two days later. And I was, <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I'm like, good, because like I had other things going on. Like yeah, I was with right. my family and I was right. like, you know, I had these appointments and all these kind of stuff. And th- this is something that's been, it's been going on for a long time. If it makes anybody feel better, they complained about this when the telegraph happened. Guys started saying, I'm getting business telegrams during family dinner and I'm never, I can never rest mm-hmm. anymore. So it's not a magical function of silicon chips. It's a function of time. Mm-hmm. So you just have to be very aggressive about scheduling your time so that your time is occupied by things that are actually beneficial and sustainable rather than not. Mm-hmm. And usually that starts with tech. Um, with some people, it's going to start with scheduling time to get to know your family again, which is an alienation that has been caused by tech. But I, I think that once the tech stuff happens, the capacity to understand where else to go from there follows with it. If you're a father, let's say you're a father, you've got, you know, three kids, yeah. 10 down, something yeah. like that. And maybe you've, you, you, there's a chance you've drifted away from most of those past 10 years to some yeah. degree. Yeah. And you want to kind of click that restart button and yeah. start to repair your family. Yeah. Um, how would you go about doing that and like re, uh, reopening up those lines of communication, reopening up that trust with your family? Yeah. Um, the family has to exist as the primary unit in each member's life. And that's really hard because if the kid doesn't have a smartphone, which he shouldn't, then his time probably is already overscheduled because that's the easiest thing to do. Hmm. That's the simplest, that's increasingly the most normal thing is that the kid is way overbooked, which is just historically speaking, insanely abnormal. Mm -hmm. When you're a kid, Generally, you have nothing going on. Um, that's how you have time to come up with all the things that kids come up with, good and bad. It's because you're not overbooked. Now you got to go here, you got to go there, you got to go everywhere. Um, that process of rearrangement is both very worthwhile for people, but also often very painful. And I just want to be clear about that. Like, I'm saying it's going to be amazing for your family. I'm not saying it's going to be easy for your family because if you've been accustomed, let's say, for you got married 12 years ago and in the past decade you've had three kids autopilot for you as a modern american has been just whatever is going to suck up time that's a thing that you lose more of all the time so changing that is going to be radically different i mean look what happened in 2020 when people were given all kinds of time back because a lot of things and even like entire swaths of companies were revealed as somewhat unnecessary, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, it's later on when uh, Musk took over um, the company Twitter. formerly known X. as Twitter. Yeah, I refuse to say X. Um, uh, when that happened, he fired like some absurd percentage of the company Mm -hmm. and the platform worked better. So once we all realized what we didn't really need to be doing, look at all the different things people started doing, like national parks became overbooked. Um, All these people started homeschooling. Some people were like, what if I just drove around in a van around the country? You know, like Mm -hmm. people's minds opened up when they were given time back. So it's going to be a radical change in your family. I would say that 
positively speaking, things that you need if if time is God's gift, then then people are a priority, is that the family doesn't exist and doesn't need to justify itself relative to anything outside itself except God, because it's his institution. So um, it, God's word is going to be the means for changing the family and making that that change to a family that is reflecting his order, his priorities, his blessings within that family. As that happens, yeah, that's going to be painful. All repentance is painful. Um, repentance is the same thing as working out. It's of infinite value, and you never want to do it before you go. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's fine. It's going to be painful. Like, just just get used to it. It's okay. And then once it happens, you need to be ready for how much possibility is going to open up in your life in terms of what you what you think, what you want to do, what you find valuable. Um, you're not going to need to entertain yourselves nearly as much. Life is actually going to cost less, therefore, because you'll realize that the time is actually more worthwhile than the expense or the distance of the vacation, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think that one thing that we're looking at is that very tangibly, once you cut maybe one piece of tech and one block of scheduling out and you just leave them blank, you're going to be really shocked by what fills it up because you've never actually attempted. It's like you've been growing plants under artificial light and now you're like, there is the sun. Mm-hmm. And now you're planting plants outside and you're like, whoa, they grow so well just with the sun. Mm-hmm. But you've never tried it before. So it's going to be shocking. Yeah. 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 The other day we were uh, we were visiting my uh, in-laws up in Canada uh-huh. and it was usually we put the kids down at the same time. We got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah. And the two-year-old, we had a really good day. Like it was just one <laughs> of the, he's, he, sometimes, usually he's mom. Yeah. And this day he was just dad. Yeah. And so it was yeah. really great. Yeah. And so we laid down, uh, We he went to bed early because he was just exhausted. Okay. And she was up doing some other stuff with the grandparents. So we went down and I just kind of laid down with him and I was just, you know, asking him about his day. And uh, we don't normally get that just the two of us yeah, at the right. end of the day. And I was just shocked at, so we had gone to Niagara Falls okay. and he, I was like, so what do you think about the falls? And he re- recited exactly a conversation he had with my wife about the colors of the falls. So yeah. My wife's like, what colors do you see? And he's yeah. like, well, I see black and blue and green. Yeah. And he's, she's like, well, where do you see the colors? She's like, he's like, the green goes into the black. And so he's like reciting this verbatim yeah, to me right. yeah. there. And I'm just asking him about like, and it's just, it was amazing to watch how his mind's working yeah, as a two-year-old, right? right? Yeah, right. And um, the only the only way that conversation ever took place was just the open 20 minutes at the end of the day where the two of us are just laying there yeah. and there's nothing else to do. Yeah. And uh, point being, you open that up and behold, you just find like this beautiful conversation where right. I'm like, I'm learning about my two-year-old son's processing right. that's going on in his mind. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kids are just mentally superior human beings. Um, just 100%. Say yeah, right. Um, they're smarter. They retain things better. Uh, they recite them better. They're just better. Yeah. Um, they're just better at being humans. Um, getting older is uh, f- is the fall into sin. I mean, I- I'm being facetious, but like... What does Chesterton say? He says, uh, <laughs> he says, we have sinned and grown old. Our father in heaven is younger than we. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's right. such a great line. Is that they have a certain, it's not just that they have a vitality and that's that's true on like a bioenergetic level. They have mm-hmm. a much greater vitality, capacity to heal, mm-hmm. you know, is incredible. But also mentally, they are much more open, especially if you will let them, 
be to what is given to their senses rather than to what their other priorities are, right? Um, kids get distracted and are obsessed with how they're bored and need to be entertained when you pull them into that very adult cycle of needing to be entertained. Mm -hmm. They don't start there, right? It's not natural that you are sort of petulant and demanding, right? Um, that is induced by being taught to be petulant and demanding and then being satisfied by being entertained or having your demands met or whatever. Kids by nature can be curious about things that adults find boring because adults, their imagination shrinks. It atrophies, mm -hmm. you know, with lack of use. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, your son is, your son is seeing things I would never see. Yeah. 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 It's the most, like, if you want, if you want a good second use of the law, like if you want a good mirror of like your own sinfulness, having kids does that so well because oh, yeah, there's so totally. many times where they're just, they're young and they're pure mm -hmm. in their imagination and their daddy, come do this. I mean, come play, come play dog or, yeah. you know, Paw Patrol or something like yeah. that. I just want to be puppies. Yeah. My like, goodness gracious. Like, I don't want to do that, you know, and I'm just, <laughs> but then in the end, it's like, I'm the idiot. Like they're the ones that want to go have fun. And I want to sit here and like worry about my emails or something Correct. like that. Yeah, and it's right. like, they're living life. And yeah. once again, I'm being sucked into the trivial. And yes. It's like right there's life. Like that's, that's what this is all about. That's right. why God said, let there be light was right. for that interaction right there. That's right. And they know it and they continually <laughs> want you to be there. And you continually are like, I don't want to. And that's what's wrong with me, you know? Yeah. I mean, the the disciples imagine that is like, basically they're saying like, Jesus's schedule is too busy. Don't bring the little children to him mm -hmm. because they're time wasters, allegedly. You also chosen? Uh, no, no. I, I really like it. it. It's kind of, I've yeah. heard, I've heard both takes. Yeah. I really like it, but there's one episode where it's, it's one of the rare episodes where there's this one's not in the Bible at all. Yeah. And they're they're open with like they're yeah. they're not trying to say like, well, we're gonna Everything. do John two here, we're gonna follow you know. Right. But there's one where it's just Jesus just interacting with kids. So he's yeah. got his little camp here and yeah, he's doing yeah. whatever he's doing in the in the city. And this little girl kind of comes up and like sees him and he, he like interacts with her and just like a uh, they play it out perfectly. Yeah. And then like this kind of group of kids start like <laughs> coming to him and he's kind of like teaching them and okay. interacting with them. Yeah. But, uh, the very first interaction with her, like he just gets real goofy, you know, and just yeah. in like a very, in a very still respectful yeah, way. Yeah, but sure. it was just, but it yeah. was really, it was a good play on that. Um, yeah. Like let the little children come to me. Right. And it's, it's a really cool episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there other, I'm, I'm trying to think of, are there other concrete things that you're wondering about? Mm -hmm. We talked about the family. Do you think that's the main if you want to change the world, yeah. save your marriage. If you wanted to save save the world, maintain your family. I mean, it seems like that's that's the primary place. I think that's true if you if you accept that it's not possible to isolate it from other fo forms of problems. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to isolate your family from the state because the state is interested in your family. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to isolate the health of your family from the health of the church because the church is largely composed of the families that form that church. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you accept that you're not isolated, that you can't really flee and be alone, but that this center of gravity is the thing that God has given you primary responsibility for, yes. Other things relate to it deeply and may be detracting from it. Um, 
but yes, your family is going to be the center of most people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, where that's the exception because you haven't formed a family in adulthood, then what you need to realize is that your time, especially that you have, can be a gift to those other realms, to other people's families, but also to your church or to your work or whatever other realm that you're operating in because you've been given more time than somebody who is raising little guys right Mm -hmm. now, right? Um, But that for everybody, that the primary thing you need to understand is that you're living your life in view of God's word and God's judgment on your family, on your church, on your whatever, rather than in view of the various opinions and judgments you might be catching from that device you haven't gotten rid of or from the busyness of the schedule, the persistence of distraction in your life, whatever other sources you're getting, here's what I should be doing. Nope, I should be doing this. Nope, I should be doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? So, you know, kind of talking about that fear, like what do you fear more God or yeah. know, the world? Um, thinking of of our congregation setting and if someone's still listening, I don't know how far we are into this, but if, <laughs> if someone's still listening and they're coming at it from like a family perspective, yeah. um, one of the chief, I think, challenges are they might say, yes, like we need to do this. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, yeah. you know, hockey, baseball, football, and tennis, like right. we'll cut the hockey out. Sure. You know, they might do something like yeah, that. Sure. Maybe if yeah. they do, God bless you. Yeah, like, right. Like, yeah. like you said, it's not going right. to be easy. It will be worth it. Right. One of the chief um, challenges that they have is for the most part, their friend circles yep. are so entrenched in those, the worldly use of time, those worldly that's ambitions right. yep. I was just gonna say. that that's, that's, I think the next step to where you can take that first step, but you're going to get hit on the chin with the fact that you're going to now stand out from, and to some degree, maybe even be ostracized from the rest of your friend group that continues to maybe accrue more and more wealth and waste more and more time and just kind of keep going down this like you're going to find yourself drifting away this is why the church talking about things actually occurring matters so much because that then gives the church the ability to start thinking can we provide for families that have opted out of the public school system can we provide an opportunity to be together for families that have opted out of um incessant travel sports Mm -hmm. because yeah it's realistic to say For a lot of people, their life is whatever their job makes them do and then whatever the travel club makes them do. And that's their whole life. And the fact that their family time is driving states away to various hockey tournaments is not something that overnight they're probably going to be like, yeah, I want to give that up because the only time I talk to my kids is connected to (laughs) the enormous amount of money that I spend on travel hockey. Because that gives me a sense of purpose. The church can give you the same sense of purpose and a much closer feeling of togetherness and a reason for all of that Mm -hmm. that travel hockey is never going to give you. And I'm not going to charge you an entrance fee and then bench your kid most of the time like happens with travel hockey. But if I don't talk about that or if you don't know about that, um, then... That doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the church seeks programmatic solutions to things that really like life change in almost anybody is going to be a combination of programmatic provision, right? Like the team practices here. We're at this rank. We're playing over here two weekends from now. There's programming to anything that people do in groups. But there's also a certain sense that the group is trying to help you do that, 
to be in the programming. If what the church is providing is you come to church and then you leave. And when you're in church, we talk only about things that have no bearing on anything else. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to ask people to be part of that. Mm-hmm. If I'm providing some sort of depth from God's word about what is occurring and 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 what you're doing and what that really meant and why you regretted it or why you'll never regret it, that is much easier to ask people to be part of and to give other things up for. Because mm-hmm. we have to be clear, in order to be a Christian at this point, if you, you know, you didn't get the message in a previous society, you're going to be given up a lot. Mm-hmm. What, can the ch- what kind of things should the church offer? Like for those kind of families, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, maybe op- opportunities for people who opt out of public schools. Right. Yeah. Programmatically, there, yeah, there are old things that we used to always do, like providing Lutheran education, whether mm-hmm. that's a school, a micro school, a home school, whatever, but providing Lutheran education uh, for our families, primarily for our families, so that they can educate their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord as simply as possible. Mm -hmm. Because that's already a sacrifice in America because you will be asked to pay for public education. We all pay for public education. It Mm -hmm. is our state church. We all pay for it even if we don't go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's already a sacrifice there. At least help them make that worthwhile. Help that be excellent. Help that be Lutheran. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's an old solution. Newer solutions involve we need to at various stages, whether people are coming into the church for the first time, or they're becoming parents for the first time, or they've been parents for a while, they want some refresher, Uh, they've been working for a while, they want some refresher, is to give them a better sense of what are called in a like 10,000 foot systematics kind of a view, the orders of creation, what would be called in catechism terms, the table of duties, is a sense of what do I do with all of this stuff in my life that isn't like going to ch- the church service? Because mm-hmm. a lot of our instruction involves knowledge that's going to prepare you to take Holy Communion in the church service, and that's great. But if your catechism class doesn't teach people why time is God's or money is God's or how to relate to the people in their lives, then you're actually missing parts of the small catechism. Mm-hmm not to speak of challenges that they're already having that you could be addressing with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of our instruction needs to be oriented towards not only knowledge, but also practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That makes sense. And anchoring it on time, I think, makes a lot of practical sense yeah. too. Yeah, and it helps connect the different parts of life to the divine service so that the life then gets to center around church rather than just being a bunch of disconnected little nodes. Mm-hmm. What kind of spiritual practices do you do in your household that you find valuable? Both yeah. both, both personal yeah. and then f- family unit. So personally, the biggest thing that was and, and is transformative for me is reading the Bible a bunch at one time. Mm. So I will sit down and read 20 chapters or I'll take two hours and read a whole book or something, mm-hmm. a book of scripture. That's transformative because it just gives you a completely different picture of everything when you do it all at once. When you treat the Bible more like Netflix rather than treating the Bible like it's TikTok, which is how most Christians treat the Bible when they use it. They use little snippets and then they're gone, Mm -hmm. which builds up some 
overall impression, but it's not terribly coherent. And it leaves most Christians then remain desperately ignorant of the Old Testament, which is what the New Testament uses as the basis for everything that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not just in the sense that this happened in the past, but here are the patterns, here's how it works, and so on and so forth. So I, I have very transformative for me personally has been doing a lot of the Bible all at once. For people that are not good readers or don't have opportunity to read a lot, I would say listen to a lot of the Bible all at once, which is very easy to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, 30 minute drive. And yeah, yeah. And that's also gonna give you a completely different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna show you that if you gave a fraction of the time to scripture that you give to movies and videos and whatever else, you are gonna have a completely different view of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for my family, um, this hasn't this is transformative in a quiet way. We've always done it, is even before our kids were born, we do devotions every night, which at this point involves praying and then reading um, a chapter of the Bible. And then the kids just ask whatever questions they want about it. Um, what it's built up in my kids that with, you know, um, some pride, maybe in a bad sense of the word, maybe in a good sense of the word, is that when we were in um, my first parish, uh, the kids went to a classical Christian school run by Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. And for the first time ever, a Lutheran kid won like the Bible knowledge competition. Yeah. And that was my son. Yeah. Um, and, and he was beating other pastors' kids, just non-Lutheran pastors. So I was like, yeah, that's right. Lutherans should know the Bible better than anybody. Yeah. So what I like about that is that I, I'm a little bit competitive. Yeah. Um, what I like about that is that it, it, it has built up in my kids a vast acquaintance with scripture that doesn't start. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being terribly pedagogical about it. I don't, we don't read it. And then I'm like, and do you remember who Abinoam is? You know, I just let it wash over them mostly, especially when they're littler. And then when they're older, they begin to ask questions, but just doing it regularly and always doing it is very powerful for the kids. Cause it's set aside. It's like brushing your teeth. We just do it. Mm -hmm. You just always do it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything extra you do with your wife beyond those devotions? Um, no, not beyond those devotions. I would say that between her and me, what we do that is important and is not specifically like a scripture-centered practice is that I feel like we talk more about life than a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're running less on autopilot. Um than a lot of folks and that keeps our minds focused on each other and together in a way that makes the solution of difficulties which naturally arise not just between us but in life mm -hmm. that much easier because you're very familiar with the person i don't have to like this idea that somehow we're raising kids right now so we don't really know each other and then we'll get to know each other again i, I don't feel that at all mm-hmm and that makes the solution of difficulties, um, resolution, finding something that, okay, this is how we're gonna move forward, so much easier. Yeah. Because it being together is a process of deepening mm -hmm. rather than kind of pulling apart and then trying to come back together. Yeah, it seems like parenting could do one, could take you down one of two paths. Like it could either make <laughs> you drift apart yeah. or it does, I think, make you draw closer because right. all the times we'll be 
you know, our kids are still, I mean, I guess you would do this always, but you're just problem solving. Like, what do you do with this? (laughs) And like, why did, why did I react this way? Or why did you react this way? And as you do those things, you start to like, we learn about each other's childhoods or about our own parents as we kind of dialogue and problem solve about our parenting. Right. And in that, like, you just, I feel like we're always, I'm psychoanalyzing my wife and vice versa. <laughs> and we're just re- learning and reflecting that, like, oh, that's why I react that way to yeah. my son when he does this, yeah. you know? And it's just, so you do, as you say, you learn about the other person, not about just like speaking to them, but yeah. about working with them as you work through and problem solve about family and everything else. And it's easy with the kids because the kids seem to have like almost nothing inside of them that isn't inside one of us. Yeah. It's just the question is always like, like what elements were used to for this particular child and this particular characteristic, but it's always somewhere. So the mystery of that deepens in the sense that it's like, wow, um, they really are the kids are the one flesh. Mm-hmm. That mystery deepens. Yeah. But where it comes from is not at all mysterious anymore. Yeah. Um, there are enough kids. It's like, yeah, I've seen this before. I've also probably seen it in myself, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, and that's why I get so upset. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My so, one, uh, I really yeah. wanted a daughter. Yeah. And we've, we've had both yeah. now. And um, hopefully I have some more. But um I really wanted a daughter, but I really wanted a son. I told my wife, yeah. this, I'm like, I want you to have a son because she had one sister. Yeah. And like early on in marriage, I'm like, I want you, us to have a son so you can understand <laughs> some of because she'd look at me sometimes and she'd be like, what the heck? Yeah, right, <laughs> You right, know, right, like what's yeah. going on? Right, right. Um, as she's running into the masculine. Yes. Right. And now that we've had a son, yeah. you know, everything makes so much more sense for her because she'll, <laughs> she looks, she's like, oh, this is what you were like as a kid. Yeah, and this is, right. so like the line, the dots start to connect. That's right. Yeah. 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 Totally. No question. Hmm. (laughs) So what else would you like our listeners to know? Is there anything that you think is, is important to put before them? Yeah. Um, I think that something we have not talked about, but maybe is a, is a good place to end because it's the opposite of being secular Mm -hmm. is that we have underestimated, but saints have devoted their entire lives to in the past. Um, Simeon and Anna do this, and maybe we think that they're silly for having done so, is they have devoted themselves to prayer. And I basically have to plead and pull my hair out, and um, it feels like pulling teeth to get myself to pray regularly. Mm -hmm. And that's my own weakness, not to speak of other people. That has fundamentally to do with a certain understanding of time that regarding time, I don't really need to pray because I need to be active. And we don't see prayer as an acknowledgement of the ascension of Christ, of the reign of Christ, of the high priest we're talking to, of his power to effect anything for which we ask. So what I started doing rather than being, for instance, frustrated with the increasingly low percentage of Americans who go to church at all or have any identifiable Christian beliefs, which is an even lower percentage than the number who go to church. There's always like these disappointing surveys, like 50% of evangelicals are fine with legalized abortion. I'm like, you know, I think think in the LCMS it's 43. It's so bad. Yeah. It's so bad. Like obviously something is 
so not working, is so horrible. We haven't talked about it. We don't know what's going on. It's horrible, right? Um, and I just started turning those very specific concerns into prayer. So you could say, Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that the 43% of Missouri Synod Lutherans who think legalized child murder is fine, that all of their hearts be changed tomorrow. Just go for it. What What's it going to hurt? Mm-hmm. So I started doing that with the country, and I said, I want you to turn the hearts of my family and of all my countrymen across the United States that they would be given a clear knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. Why not? What's it going to hurt? I mean, he can do whatever he wants with that. He can be like, you're an idiot, Koontz. Like, I hate, you know, <laughs> you're just as dumb as you always were. It's fine, you know? And I'd be like, okay, thank you, you know? Or he, he could he could, he could, could do some or all of what I ask. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I just ask him. Mm-hmm. And that partly has to do with the use of time, but it partly also has to do with a certain audacity in prayer, which is really the... In prayer, it's the same thing as that boldness of speech that we should have with other people. Is it, why don't you just say it? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just ask? You know, are you are you so important that you being a little bit wrong is more important than actually just asking the Father for it? So I think that one one place to start with reclaiming for Christ those souls, that time, those lives that are his, that he's won by his blood, is by beginning with prayer, right? Mm-hmm. And also ending with prayer. And so I think something something that has been, I suppose, specifically transformative in that regard is learning to pray the whole range of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Because I found that any other rhythm was too limiting and that I needed to just do 15 Psalms at once out loud in my office, like a psycho, you know, <laughs> uh, in order to capture the range of the things that are both on the heart, but also unexpressed, perhaps unknown. It's all sitting there, mm-hmm. you know? And so just, just use that and just try that. Do one Psalm. If you want to just do it over and over again, whatever suits you, but but to start to use those things, because I think secularization, if it's increasing distance from affirmation and practice of Christianity, can only be reversed through just saying things that might at this point sound sort of crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, I trust in you, Jesus, and you are going to change the future and it's gonna be glorious. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Have you noticed changes from that? Uh, All kinds. Yeah. All kinds. Like. In myself, it makes you so much less cynical. Mm -hmm. You do become more childlike the more you pray. You're kind of like more simple-hearted, you know? You're not asking so much from other people and you're happier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Real quick, I'll just piggyback off that with one because I've got the same struggles where you you look back at your week and go, man, I've not done a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've tried to adopt, and I got this from the Brothers Karamazov, actually. Okay. It's like kind okay. of a throwaway in there. And yeah. uh, there's a lot of good throwaways in there. But um, I try to, if I'm like in a grocery store or on a bus, or I've, I've flown a lot recently, so mm-hmm. like an airport, yeah. um, try to put the phone down mm-hmm. and just look around and then just like pray for people. And you don't know what to pray for, but just to raise right. them up. And at that point, that's your, at some degree, that's your job. God's put you in that situation. Yeah. And uh, one of the lines that struck me in the Brothers Karamazov is, I think it's uh, the Father Asama says, um, you might be the only person that ever intercedes for that person. You might be the only oh, person. Oh, 100%. And 
100%. I mean, how true is that today? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, people don't care about each other. Yeah. They don't know each other, mm-hmm. you know? 100%. You might be the only person who cares, and you don't even care that much, but guess what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right? Um, so, yeah, I think you become more simple-hearted. You become less cynical. I think you also begin to look at people in the right light. Mm-hmm. That is, you begin to look at them in the light of eternity in the light of Christ's work on their behalf, in the light of that they are human flesh and blood like you are, and so subject to the same weaknesses. I mean, I think it's important when Paul says in Hebrews that part of the function of the high priest is that he is able to sympathize. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you begin to see other human beings as in need of Christ's redemption instead of inconveniences, distractions, obstacles, whatever. Yeah. Um, And prayer does that to you in a very noteworthy way because it begins to take everything you're thinking, you're feeling, whatever, and put it in light of the fact that God is going to handle it. Mm -hmm. And then it's done. It's up to him. And it's going to be the best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Adam, thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking. Yeah. Um, If anyone wanted to uh, learn more from you, they could go to the pastor's conference. Yeah. Well, or maybe they couldn't actually. (laughs) they could find you in a lot of different areas. Yeah. Where where could they go? Where would you would you direct them towards? I would website? just Google a brief history of power. That's mm-hmm. the podcast I do every week, um, twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Um, and Is that on you, most formats? YouTube. That's or? pretty much you know wherever you get your podcast type of a deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we'll, it, we'll put a link in the description yeah, as well. Yeah, that'll work. And if you Google me, there aren't that many people in the world named Adam Kuntz, K-O-O-O-N-T-Z. So if you look for me on YouTube or whatever, you'll get courses on preaching, New Testament, lots of different things that I've done that people have recorded. So they can they can check that out and then realize it's junk and move on to something else. But yeah, if you <laughs> cat just- Cat videos. Yeah, cat videos, whatever. If you just Google my name, you'll, you'll, probably, find, you'll probably find plenty of stuff. Perfect, yeah. yeah. And we'll definitely have you back on the podcast. Awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, Adam, God bless. Cheers. Thank you. Mm